0: Thanks for joining us. And um, uh, this is the end of the first week of the physics track of our summer school. And um, uh, you are the first of a of a new thing we're sort of trying, which is doing Q&As with very interesting people. And, Thank um, you. <laughs> and, and so, um, and in fact, beyond that, the kind of structure we're hoping for is that maybe we can... Um, uh, we can start off with me kind of asking you some things about background and so on, and then uh, uh, people are welcome to put questions in the chat and uh, maybe ask them uh, in person uh, as well. But so, so let, me, let me just give a little bit of an introduction to, to Bob. So Bob, for people who don't know it, has been uh, a big person in the whole effort to sort of diagram, how should I call it, diagrammatify quantum mechanics or something. I have, I have Bob's book here with its, with its um, uh, about picturing quantum processes, which is actually as thick as a bunch of books I've written. Um, and it's full of pictures <laughs> yes. that are uh, probably to many people, at least as bizarre as the pictures that are in books of mine. By the way, does that dodo have a name, Bob?
1: I mean, the reason, the reason we picked the dodo was because it's like 50 metres from our office, there is like the only dodo remnants. Yes, All the material is in Oxford in the museum there, you know, which was 50 metres from our office. So there's the
0: one dodo, the one dodo which remains. Let's hope that our theories and efforts survive better than just to have one little uh, (laughs) dried-out foot, so to speak, a few hundred years from now. (laughs) Exactly. um, But so... So so I'm curious, Bob, I mean, in, you know, what you are best known for, to us at least, is this kind of formalism for quantum mechanics that uh, involves diagrams and category theory and so on. Um, but I'm curious, how, how did you get to doing this? What was it? You, you were at first an ordinary physicist, is that true? Or were you were you never an ordinary physicist, so to speak? Uh,
1: I mean, I, so I started as an engineer, actually. And I think this helped me a lot in my career. So I started as an engineer. And the reason I started as an engineer was really stupid. I came from a little village. and was very political. And I thought, and nobody listened to me. And I thought the only reason people are going to listen to me is if I studied the most difficult thing ever, which was in Belgium engineering, because you had to do a special exam to actually get into the university. I was actually pretty crap at school, by the way, because I didn't care, <laughs> to be honest. It was sort of political. Politics got me like to, to make an effort. Then I got, then I had to do some sort of internship and I thought the real world was really boring. So, and then I moved to physics and maths together. I did physics and math together. And then part of the reason I went to physics was because my quantum mechanics course in engineering, I hated it. And then I got this idea, I hate it. So maybe I should change it.
0: Why did they teach quantum mechanics to engineers? Were they? they... Uh, It was a
1: standard course in the second year.
0: So, you know, in the future... With all this quantum computing stuff maybe they will be teaching quantum mechanics to engineers but back in the day I'm not sure why they would okay, be doing I think
1: that. it was about understanding lasers and stuff. The... Maybe, maybe it was connected to the university I was because they had a big laser physics department or something like that so it was about understanding lasers and stuff I think. Uh, to be honest like my first year courses I loved in engineering they were much better than the, the first year courses in maths and physics because in belgium engineering was much more higher regarded than doing physics or maths what so you kind of
0: engineering like, what what kind of engineering was that was the big kind? The first
1: year it was all together second so my idea was to do physical engineering but then actually switched to architecture
2: okay. because there was a
1: combined degree of building engineer and architecture and i was also some, some sort of artist so uh so i actually moved but then i had to do some internship and then i gave totally up on the outside world <laughs> every game that week so i went back to physics and maths like started although,
0: although you're now back you're now back about to be in the gravitational uh, attraction exactly. of a large engineering company
1: exactly exactly. <laughs> so it's so, exactly so
0: what was what was the engineering company that you did your internship in what what kind of engineering do you oh,
1: do you so do? just some building company like like I mean, and then you have to start talking to people about uh, like their wishes about your architecture and stuff and how you design stuff. And I said, shit, this is, this is not artistic. There's no art going on here. So I went back to the science thing. So I went back to the science thing. And then at that time, I kind of, because I hated the course of quantum physics in engineering, I kind of said, there's something wrong here. There should be something more fundamental going on there. There should be something nicer to do and uh, and, and really, from when I started studying my undergrad in physics and maths, I had this idea, I'm going to change quantum mechanics. Okay. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean maybe many people have this idea, but to some extent, actually, <laughs> I kind of succeeded in a little bit, a little bit in, in at least doing that.
0: Because so- I hear... So, so did you go on and, and uh, sort of do quantum mechanics for your PhD and things like that?
1: Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I, my PhD was in a foundation. I mean, my PhD, because, I mean, PhDs, you, you depend on supervisors, you know? I mean, usually. So, so I did my PhD on my, uh, hidden variables. And then I was unemployed.
0: But so what, what was the, what kind of formalism did you use for your PhD?
1: Uh, So, so we start to think I did like I built some theory about like uh, contextual hidden variables. And it was pretty much saying that anything that you, if you want to understand it in quantum mechanics, in a sort of causal way, classical causal way, you can do it if you want it. The main problem with that thing was it didn't teach you anything. It was sort of, I mean, you know, these people, the Bobians and all of these people, you know, these Bobian mechanics and all that, and all these people are very obsessed about things. I mean, what, what I saw there, it's like whatever they are doing is actually trivial. But it doesn't but, teach you anything.
0: But I'm, I'm just curious, the kind of formalism, because, I mean, things like the Cochran specker theorem and all these various kinds of ways to home in on what, what no, is the essence of something. i was going
1: back to, to basic, like, basic measure theory. It was very foundational. It was basic set theory, measure theory. Very naive. But just going all the way down, see can you build things up from like a set theoretic level to... Explain things causally if you want to, if you just bring in the idea that there are some variables in the measurement context. I mean, this was not my initial idea. This idea went back to an idea by Constantin Piron and Gisin. They had a paper, they had some paper where they actually uh, had some model for like qubit measurements where they actually put a, me- a variable in the measurement context and then you actually explain things deterministically. You can do this. And so so this was just for Qubit, so, and then uh, my supervisor he was, he was obsessed with that idea. So I generalised this to infinite dimensions and all that, and it basically showed that an idea like that doesn't buy you anything. It just says, okay, you can do it, so what?
0: Does, does it end up grinding into sort of the, the details of set theory and all kinds of elaborate no, sort of transfinite things? It
1: doesn't buy you anything. I mean, okay. that, that, there's a few questions, there's a few questions about how much cardinality do you need, like in the context relative to, 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 to your system description, probably there's some more interesting things to be said there, but that's, that's really all there was. That's really all there was. But,
0: but, there but was what I'm part- curious about, and in, in, you know, normally in physics, you know, a lot of physics, like ordinary quantum mechanics, is basically 19th century mathematics. And I'm curious yeah. whether the things you were doing were kind of solid 20th century set theory or whether it was sufficient to use kind I mean, of- I mean,
2: I, mean, I, mean, I mean,
1: the sort of books I read was like books of lattice theory of Burkov and, and stuff like that. And then the theorems I used uh, were all 20th century theorems. Right. Uh, yeah, it was all 20th century mathematics. I, uh, I can't remember the names it's so long ago, but it was generally 20th century discrete mathematics.
0: Interesting, interesting. In
1: that, word, in that word. But the main point is it didn't teach me anything. I didn't. I said, okay, now I can live the rest of my life with the idea that if we want quantum theory to be sort of uh, deterministic, we can have it. And we can have any other theory to be deterministic if we want to, but it doesn't bring anything new to the picture. It's just like some sort of comfort. It's like a sofa. Okay, if, that, if that's how I like to think about the world, then I can think about the world like that but he doesn't teach me anything. So it was kind of a very negative result for me.
0: Uh, so, okay, so you said then you, you got your PhD in hidden variables and then nobody wanted to hire you to do hidden variables.
2: Yeah, I was an employee.
0: <laughs> I mean, nobody wanted to
1: hire anybody who wasn't doing string theory and nobody, and definitely, it wasn't. there wasn't a single job for anybody outside string theory. Like what, I'm what not year? talking about faculty, I'm talking about postdoc.
0: What, what year was this?
1: 95 ish Okay,
0: okay, I mean, but so was just
1: nothing else.
0: So I mean, the foundations of quantum mechanics at that point, nobody cared about them. Is that a first? Statement?
1: Well, I mean, there was a there was a bunch of people who cared about them, uh, interpretations in and mostly in philosophy department. They were just screaming at each other. But uh, what I mean, about there political know, camps against each other, and they comp-
0: and I think the field got destroyed in that way. But, I mean, there was already the beginnings of quantum computing. I mean, people, you know, back in the starting, 1980s. That was starting,
1: but that was like in IBM, you know, like uh, in companies like Bennett and IBM, Chris Fuchs, people like that, they were at IBM. They were well,
0: there were people like David Deutsch in Oxford, but he was a little yeah.
1: bit... That, that was kind of like hippie plays, you know. <laughs> that was, I mean, if you, if you if you listen to the story of somebody like Richard joza who, like, you know, the first algorithm there was Deutsch-Josa, David Deutsch and, and Richard-Josa. So richard, richard Joseph was trained as a category theoretician. Okay. theory. He had, like, a horrible career path. He actually had children when he was doing his PhD, like, also, and, and of post. he was horrible, like, uh, he talked to me about that. So, and then he ended up, like, yeah, meeting David Deutsch, and then he came up with this algorithm, and then things went well for him. But also him. I mean, he wasn't great, like, it was a very long time before actually any physics department hired the first person in quantum computing. It took a very long time before that happened. I think this was well in the, in the 2000s. And I can't remember exactly, but it was very well in 2000 before. And just all the like, Chris Fuchs, and lots of these people, they were all working at IBM and uh, Howard Barman, like uh, the, the lab, you know, these names in the US, the, the government labs and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. No, Los I Al- remember when...
1: Los Alamos and stuff like that. That's where these people were working. That's what they were doing. There were a few people, of course there was people like Arthur Eckert, but uh, he was at Oxford. So Oxford was a very good place initially then uh, to do these sort of things. But, like- but
0: when was there a connection made? I mean, there had been the, the foundations of quantum mechanics crowd that had gone in the philosophy direction. And there was also, you know, I remember from the beginning of the 1980s, there were people talking about you know, computers were obviously important, and there were physicists thinking about how would you physicalize computers. When did those two things start to merge? Was that much later that the... I, mean, the, I think the, that
1: intellectually merged already together then, like with people like Benioff and all that, like Yuri Mining was...
0: I, you. I don't think so. I, I knew, I, I can tell you from first-hand knowledge, because I, I knew Mark, uh, the uh, um, Paul Benioff back um, when I was in uh, a, a summer visitor at Argonne National Lab back when he was doing his, um, his uh, quantum uh, computing stuff. And he was very much of a, uh, you know, we know there are computers and we know that they operate with bits and semiconductors and things. How would we formulate this in terms of Hamiltonians and, uh, and quantum mechanics? Okay,
1: planets? okay. I see your question now, like real connecting up the physics and the... Uh,
0: I think that's much more recent, is- isn't it?
1: must be, but what do you mean by physics? Like, because you're now well, saying Estonians.
0: No, I'm, I'm saying that the, the people thinking about making computers quantum mechanical versus the people thinking about the foundations of quantum mechanics, those seem to have merged only quite recently.
1: I th- So to some extent, I think it was like an opportunism by, by young people in, from quantum foundations who basically didn't see any career opportunities, except, of clar- except for declaring themselves, like quantum computing people. I mean, I was mm-hmm. one of them. I was one of them. <laughs> lots of, okay. lots of them that. I mean, and then you've got like the people like Rob Speckens and look this this new wave of quantum foundations. They all did that. So like with quantum computing, they got quantum computing jobs while they were still interested in foundations and all that. That's what they all did. I mean, I mean, I was the first professor of quantum foundations in the world. The first How one. You? Okay. Wait, wait. I mean, I'm not in a computer science department.
0: Ah, okay. That's even, that's even bigger trick. That, that's what okay. makes it
1: interesting. That's the bit which makes it interesting. The second one was the second and this is not the second one was Shazlav Bruckner in Vienna, where you know Zeilinger's uh, lab and all that. So he was the second one because these people have been doing like foundational physics and all that. So mm-hmm. it's very interesting that the first person in the world, professor of quantum foundations, was in a computer science department.
0: That is interesting. So, OK, so we, I, I want to know more about your trajectory. So 1995, you're an unemployed hidden variables. <laughs> person, right. So what happened next? Uh, I tried to
1: redefine myself as a logician, mathematician. So I managed to get some sort of, fe- I mean, the system in Belgium is very similar to France. If you, know, you get some uh, government sort of fellowships and I managed to get one in maths, in logic, in logic. Because before that, I was purely a trained physicist. So, so I learned a little bit of logic. I started getting category theory and stuff like that through connections with uh, Louvelle-Anneuve, where Borceux. You know, there was a big category theory group there. Uh, and then again, it kind of ended. So uh, they came, what kind uh, of
0: logic was, was, was this? Well, this came out
1: quantum logic. Quantum lo- so, 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 so my academic grandfather is Constantin Piron. He like one of the big fathers of quantum logic. So
0: what is the history of that? I mean, so von Neumann was talking about quantum logics, but is that the same lineage as, as the quantum logic you're talking about? Or is that?
1: Totally, totally. So von Neumann declared in 35. It's a very interesting story for everybody who's listening here. Like von Neumann declared in, declared in 35, three years after he published his book, which is still the standard quantum formalism, that he hated it. So what von Neumann went up to do after that was like all the C-star algebra stuff, the von Neumann algebra stuff, and a lot of all this math work he did, which, which is completely changed math, was actually looking for a new quantum formalism.
0: Why, did, what, von, why did von Neumann think, I mean, he, he did his whole development in terms of sort of traditional, I don't evolve. know, um, yeah, eigenvalue operator theory and things like this of, of um, uh, his his original quantum mechanics book. So, wh- why did he come to hate it? What was he doing around that time? That that was around the time of Gödel's theorem. It was around the time when when mathematical logic was getting uh, people were so, getting enthusiastic about so it. So, definitely, like intuitionistic logic had an impact on that.
1: Like the that the traditional laws of logic were being challenged. Like, of course, there was Brouwer and all these schools, and then then that's why he came up initially with this idea with Birkhoff, like. Okay, clearly quantum mechanics seems to say something different. It's not about like an excluded middle. It's Well, that's part of it, but it's also about like distributivity seems to break down too. I mean, basically, okay, when you you kill distributivity, you kill deduction, you've got nothing left. So so that program ultimately led to nothing, and even von Neumann himself abandoned this very quickly, although he had been pushing for it for a while, this quantum logic program. And then he he went to look, I I know he was obsessed at some point. I mean, I don't know the details, but he was obsessed at some point with type 2 factors for reasons we don't understand. I don't understand. What What are these called? Type 2 factors of the Neumann Algebra. What are those? I mean, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, you you should have asked my academic, I mean, he's dead now, unfortunately, Von Jones, but he's my academic cousin, Von Jones. He, He could explain all that stuff to me. Unfortunately,
0: no, he died. I, I didn't know Vaughan Jones. I mean, I, I knew him somewhat. I mean, he was—he's famous for things in knot theory and so on. What was his? How did he? So he started wh- his PhD with Piron Aha! Uh-huh. Comes okay. from quantum logic. Is—is my my nephew, academic nephew. How <laughs> did he get from quantum logic to knot theory? Uh, well, now I uh,
1: So I was doing. This. I mean, they. I mean. He didn't finish his PhD in quantum logic. He was kind of a wild guy when he was younger. And that's partly what kind of got him in the end, I think. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, he didn't finish and then he wanted to do something else. And then university, as far as I remember, University of Geneva, I didn't support him anymore. So I had to move elsewhere. But still, I remember meeting him regularly in Piron's office when I was going there as a PhD student he was a very funny guy. I mean, at that time, nobody knew him.
0: Right.
1: He was kind of, I mean, we I mean, were kids. But, but uh, he was a very interesting. I, I mean, I only met him recently. Then I didn't meet him for like 10, 15 years. And then I met him at for at some event. And it was like, <laughs> it was really nice to meet each other again. Like, but yeah, not too long after that, he unfortunately died. I mean, he looked very bad at that time already. But yeah, so he came from that. So another person who came from exactly the same school, is Ingrid Dobeshi's I know her too. Yes. She okay. came exactly from the same school group with Pirol. Okay. So kind of funny that there was like this.
0: So that, so you went into pictorial uh, quantum mechanics, Ingrid Dobeshi's invented wavelets, and uh, Vaughan Jones did the Jones polynomial.
1: Yeah. That's I mean, a good, that's a good diverse set of outcomes. Technology. We came from the same quantum logic source. <laughs> so, well, nothing that we did had anything to do with that anymore. I mean, I probably stayed the closest in a way.
0: Yes, I would say so. Of, of those, if I were to pick for those three. But so, so what were the questions then? And you know, when you were doing quantum logic, what were so, the things so, that people? So,
1: so, another person who was there was Nicolas Gisin. Uh, I don't know whether he knows, he's one of the top quantum experimentalists. Um, he's, he's in Geneva still.
0: I've seen the name, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah he's, 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 I mean, he's, he's at the level of Xyling experimentally. He's like in, in, that, in that category, like he's one of the people sometimes considered for Nobel Prize and stuff like So he's very big. So he was also from there. And, and some of the work they did there, Doboshi too, was on a, trying to understand the tensor product in quantum mechanics. Where does it come from? Can we conceptually justify why we combine systems in this way? and not like classically. I mean, and, and all the sort of formalisms people came up with like, be it like quantum logics, all these alternative for- formalism pushed by von Neumann's desire to have an alternative formalism, they couldn't reproduce the tensor. product. They couldn't reproduce the way we combine systems. So you can find papers by Gisey on that. You can find paper by Dobichy on that. Really, all these people wrote about that. <laughs> That sort of stuff. The problem with the tensor product in quantum mechanics. And uh, so, so my idea ultimately at some point was like, let's not construct it. Let's assume it. Mm-hmm. And, and I started to work on that in the late 90s. And, and the breakthrough was basically like using diagrams. That's when you implicitly just assume there is a thing. You put two wires side by side. That's a tensor product. And that's all you say about it. And then you start putting in cups and caps and stuff like that, and it implicitly starts defining your structure. So you basically take your composition as the number one. So it really, so the failure of, of describing the tensor product in, in quantum logic is what got me to say we need to co- come up with a formalism where the tensor is the number one uh, citizen. You, that's, you don't talk about your systems, you don't say what your systems is. Yeah, so the tensor product is the only thing you can care about, like how things composed. sort of very relational, very holistic, whatever. I mean, there's lots of words philosophers came up about doing this stuff. But so, it actually, so, so that sort of thing, which all these people worked on, like Fizei and Dobichis, and got nowhere because the whole... I mean, I can explain. I don't want to go here, there, because the, 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 there is a reason why all that stuff failed. And the reason all that stuff failed, it goes back to Poincaré. Basically,
0: explain why? that. Yeah, what, why? why?
1: Uh, so, 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 so people like piron and and this old generation coming from that sort of Geneva school, which which went back, by the way, which went back to a uh, what's his name, like uh, the one who taught Feynman, Feynman diagrams. Uh, what's his name again? Tom um,
0: Wheeler. No, 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 no. Uh, Bruno from. Uh, Oh yes, yes. Um, Stuckelberg. Uh, uh, Stuckelberg. 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 but all from Stuckelberg? So, so he, he was Piron's supervisor. Ah. So he, he was
1: Piron's supervisor. He was, and uh, so he's the one basically kind of told Feynman about Feynman diagrams, and then Feynman, and Feynman actually admits this even like, yeah, the, the master told me. He says this somewhere. The master told me. So of course this was a very very foundational deep school because there was this totally rich guy who didn't care about academics and careers and stuff like that and just made people be like
0: very was, from all um, accounts he was a very colourful character he was a very
2: colorful,
1: I mean Piron was a very colourful character too I can tell you that like, so I, I grew up among colourful characters <laughs> but yeah so so, so it, it was very foundational. I mean to the extent that me, I wasn't allowed to publish in any normal journal, like, like PRL or stuff like that, because this was all selling out.
0: Oh yeah? What, 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 were, the, what were the true journals?
1: Helvetica Physica Acta.
0: Doesn't exist ah. anymore. So that's what Stuckerberg <laughs> published. It the
1: local, local Swiss Stuckelberg journal. That was a good journal. Okay. So if you look at my career, like in the beginning, I published there. <laughs> it's really crazy.
0: So you so were saying that the, the mistake that goes back to Poincaré, what was, what was that?
1: OK, OK, so so they were very serious about things and, and, and they believed, of course, that, I mean, the Francophone culture played a role there too and Poincaré was this big hero and Poincaré had this, like, le science setting out the philosophy of the science of the 20th century because this was the beginning of the 20th century should be and there was this dogma about there is no way you can talk about anything if you don't put it in a box. If you don't talk about an isolated system, which was, of course, a very important statement, like if you don't want any interactions with the outside world. So this was an obsession almost like this isolated system thing. So the way they set up their logic, their quantum logic, was about like, we assign propositions to systems and there is no interference from the outside world. Now what I, the way I believe now that what quantum theory tells us is that's an illusion. We have to come up with new I mean I mean I think I mean obviously it's built in our formulas we have to come up with new ways to 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 formulate that mars is not going to affect whatever I'm doing here in the lab without having to assume that everything we describe is in a box. We have to do things, we have to learn new science about things which are not in the box. But the whole quantum logic was set up such that it was only talking about stuff which is inside a box.
0: I, I don't think, I mean, I think that goes a lot earlier than Poincaré. I mean, you know, from the yeah, whole yeah, bacon. No, of course,
1: I mean, that's, that's Galilei, of course, and stuff well, like
0: that. The, the very idea that one can do an isolated experiment is a foundational idea from sort of the, 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 yes. The traditional scientific method and it may be not true but it's a it's a it's a you know for it's a sort of important idealization but but i'm curious so you're saying in the in the quantum logic tradition that this was a this was does this appear like as an axiom in quantum logic that it's, it is it, possible it, it, oh there's everything is pure by
1: default and and uh, the way it's set up quantum logic is set up is really everything is propositional and the way i think about it is like I mean, I thought, I mean, it's a long time since I thought about it. I thought about this it. really hard 20 years ago when I was employed and stuff like that. But I, I understood that, like, the whole fo- there's one nice paper by a guy called David Moore, who, one of the people who's not in academia anymore, who's much smarter than me. He writes, he writes a very nice paper about the analysis of quantum logic and the, the, the importance of uh, these hypotheses of isolated systems and all that. And, it, it's clear you put, I mean, mathem, I mean, mathematics is not good taking something outside of a box once you put it inside a box. That's not how maths works. You know that maths doesn't work like that. And I think that's what killed quantum logic. I mean, that's what killed quantum logic because they were talking about stuff inside a box. Now we know that for me, the most interesting thing about quantum mechanics is actually the fact that you don't stick things in a box, you let them roam free, you let them interact and all that. And that's clearly all the stuff, I mean, I come from this culture where, uh, I came from Brussels school, that's another, So, in one hand I was in Geneva, on the other side, I was in Brussels, who was in Brussels like Prigogine. So we had a Nobel Prize next door. Uh, so, so you were indoctrinated. Yes, I,
0: I, I interacted with Prigogine a bit. I, he was, uh, he was um, I would say of uh, uh, a certain, uh, what can I say? I, he had a certain more organisational flair, perhaps than scientific flair. Um, he was—I um, uh, I never really believed his um, dissipative structures stuff, which—which was—which—which. Which, talking of lineages of things, I mean, he got that from Turing. That was the whole, you know, yes. Turing reaction diffusion yes. story. Um, and he was
1: very frustrated that he got a chemistry Nobel Prize, <laughs> not a physics
2: one. <laughs> ah,
0: well, okay, that's some. Um, uh, the, well, but, but um, so what was his influence on, I mean, he didn't seem like, I mean, he, he talked about foundations of thermodynamics, but he didn't seem to get involved in quantum mechanics. His
1: influence was pretty much that anything I was taught in my curriculum as a physicist was non-linear dynamics. Okay. So I, I, I developed a disgust for that.
0: Okay, so, fair enough. Well, and, good then. It's good you're working on quantum mechanics, which has exactly. some linearity properties.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. So... So and and one of the beautiful things was at some point there was an event in Brussels '95. There was a like Piron and Prigozhin were both there. I mean they were basically killing each other. <laughs> Two old men, too close to die, <laughs> like on the stage, killing each other, which was very. But it, it, they kind of drove me away. So so it it, it kind of impacts your your personality if you got people like that around all the time.
0: Those okay. Sort so of, what so yeah. what happened next? So you were doing. Quantum logic, in, um, and you uh, you you you'd embedded yourself in a quantum logic world. Then that what was it. You always, decided...
1: yeah. So it was all very confused. There was chaos going on from Peter, Peter Uh I compl- I mean, I did, couldn't get a job. I completely gave up, and I applied to the Arts Institute of Chicago for a for a position in art because I was an artist too.
0: I failed then, and then I. I in think in I, pure I, art, or in some art that relates to to mathematics or something. Uh, Uh, Well, it was
1: a combination of music and maths. I was doing music and maths. Like I was doing stuff with computers and all that. Uh, And then suddenly I got like, I mean, I'd never ever anything to do with computer science ever in my life. And then I got like an email from uh, Samson Abramsky. Do you want the seven month poster? Okay. That's when, that's how things then suddenly changed. So So I went to computer science. And then I suddenly learned that these people had been thinking about like composing systems and stuff like that. Like after this whole frustration with quantum logic didn't know how to compose systems, suddenly as the computer scientists, they, they just compose them and, and they so, take monoidal category. They take some monoidal category and they say, okay, there's a monoidal product that we compose stuff.
0: So what was the lineage? So S- Samson Abramsky is, was in computer science in Oxford. Is that right? Yeah. So what, and it was a Strachey was
1: professor, Strachey professor. What's that? Strachey professor, after Christopher Strachey.
0: Oh, okay, okay. So, but, so yeah, in Oxford, yeah. there had been this programming research group that had been doing kind of mathematical theory of programming languages. Is that, the, is that kind of the tradition that that came out of?
1: Yes, Dana Scott was there too. Yes. Oh, oh, Dana. I mean, it was a small computer science department, a small department, but there had been some, there was some lineage, like a, Dana Scott, Strachey, Tony
3: Hoare, like, you know, like, Gogan, can I, Gogan. Can I, can I ask, the, was Abramsky, at that point, was he in the sort of chief theoretic phase? Because that doesn't strike yeah, me as of... a...
0: That's much later. That's much later. So, so just, just to understand that history, because I think people might be curious about it. I mean, the, you know, I, I remember, because I grew up in Oxford, so I actually remember visiting the programming research group when it was a little tiny. Uh, Which years were there? What's that? Which years were? There? Because that's interesting for me. Well, I visited there. I mean, I remember that I, the first computer I saw was when I was like 10 years old. That was 1970. And the person who... Uh, uh, for various reasons took me to see that computer was a guy called Joe Stoy, who was a person who worked. Oh, he with...
1: was still in the department when I arrived.
0: Okay, fair enough. All right. So it's, it's um, uh and then subsequently that the, I, I never really had serious interaction with the programming research group there, but I think it must have been um that's right. I, I knew Dana Scott. Um uh-huh. And um, you know, he'd been working on denotational semantics, which was his kind of mathematical me, theory yeah, of programming uh, languages. Yeah. And one of the things that happened back in 1980 or so, I had developed my first uh, programming language, computer language, this thing called SMP. And no. so I asked Dana, I said, what's the point of denotational semantics? And he says, it's this general theory of programming languages. And so I said, okay, great. You know, let me show you this language that we've developed because you know, how does it fit in with your general theory of languages? And he looks at it and he says, uh, it doesn't fit in. So it's like, what does this mean? What kind of a theory is this? You know, I have a language, you have a general theory of programming languages, how can it not fit your, your theory of programming languages? And, I, and I've known Dana fairly well for many years now, and he's been a, a big user of our technology and uh, done all kinds of interesting things with it. And every time I ask him about the international semantics or Scott domains, or any of these kinds of things, he says, "Oh, that's very complicated stuff. You don't want to know about that." So I, I've never, <laughs> so I've never really learned about that. But but um, that was, uh, um, but I've never, I, I don't know, and I'm I'm curious about, um, uh, you know, I I was aware of Dana Scott and his kind of denotational semantics, which which, um, um, and then there are these things like process algebra, which I've never learned about, which yeah. I think. Originated from, uh, if I understand it, originated within that group. Is that right, or, or how did well, you that? Had,
1: you had like a Cambridge camp and an Oxford. You had, I think, there was there two different names. One was Tony Hoare, and the other one was a uh, Robin Miller, I think. Okay. And they were different ones. It was concurrent communicating CCP, and then there was another one. There was the Oxford one and the Cambridge one. But I think these things are all vanishing. They they are, they've all vanished. Yes. Yeah. They were incredibly complicated and
0: cumbersomely. The notation was horrible. But so why did these people, the thing I'm a little bit confused by, this was all happening in the 1960s to 1970s, I think, the origination of these kinds of, kinds of uh, distributed computing models and so on. And yeah. I don't quite know why they were doing that. I mean, there was, there was, early, there was early thinking about parallel computation was that what led these people to do this? I mean, was it a sort of practical thing, or was it something that came out of some mathematical idea? I mean,
1: I'm sure like a lot of that stuff became practical and has been used even, but
0: only a bit I ultimately,
1: think. ultimately like with, with people like Gordon Plotkin coming around, they basically said, All this syntactic stuff is so ugly, let's start doing category theory. Hmm. And that's that's when people I think Plotkin was the first one to push his idea Milner jumped on this boat Abramsky was one of the early ones too to jump on the category theory boat and then things became like actually cleaner and then then actually computer science starts to reach a level that that some of the stuff they are doing actually becomes useful to other sciences too
0: but so so I so, was
1: completely useless
0: but so the early stage was the you know the the Tony Hall Robin Milner kind of uh, theory of parallel computation and an attempt to, and, and a rather, uh, you know, a, a fairly complicated set of primitives that would be ways of communicating between what you're now describing as, I mean, because when you describe these sort of two wires or something or yeah, two yeah, systems, yeah. you know, that that's a story of things happening in parallel. Um, yes, exactly. And, and, and so what, you know, what, what you say about this, the sort of early, uh, and, and, you know, the, the Tony Hall, Robin Milner stuff, is they were trying to model somehow actual sort of things in a computer where messages were being sent from one process to another was that the kind of thing
1: yes yeah yeah yeah. it was like uh i mean i mean some of that stuff became very useful in security for example as far as i know like like a a person like bill roscoe like i mean they still have companies completely based on this sort of formalisms and they do they, they, they do encryption and stuff like that and so so this is still useful but uh So I'm now talking about like going beyond the syntactic useful to actually the foundationally I mean I think I think the big effort we are doing here I mean you your team and and what I've been interesting is like understanding like interaction in a foundational way yeah and 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 those syntactic formalisms never contribute to that
0: so so let me understand though so out of that stuff came then process algebra is that right Process algebra, yes. And then what was the relationship between those kinds of things and the theorem proving traditions and the sort of formal verification? Yeah, I mean, it's of
1: programs. Sort of, I, mean it's, it, I think it's kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask this because this is like before my year, like I said, I, I, I didn't know computer science until 2000 at all. And, and I mean, in my entire life, I think I got one computer science course, and there they told me what the ENIAC was or
0: something like that. <laughs> Seriously, I was a professor of computer science for a long time. I got one computer science course in my life. Uh, but uh, sorry, right. you're ahead of me. When I when, I've,
2: I, I've, when I
1: when I arrived at Oxford, when I arrived at Oxford, like the courses were already like category theory, like processes like Curry, Curry Howard, and stuff like that. You know, like. Uh, uh, uh uh lambda calculus and, and combinators and things like that i mean that's 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 that was the courses i first saw in the computer science department in oxford wow Which a complete new level you know so that that's so okay that's computer science it actually looks cool right. know, that was my i mean I, I think i can live in this place for a while and i stayed 20 years <laughs> uh-huh. that's what i got that's what i got like like I. So I was Abramsky told me, okay, you never have computer science course in your life, take the lambda calculus course. Okay. And that's that's kind of cool stuff.
0: So so then what was the relationship? So so I mean the, the the quantum logic world is sort of connected to certain kinds of mathematical logic, but it is not the same kind of mathematical logic that shows up in things like lambda calculus. And combinators and so on. It's really a different branch of, of math Yeah,
1: I, I think I think I mean I think this is now going on also I think with the what's happening with um, machine learning and stuff like that. Some of this old propositional stuff, which actually basically goes back to the Greeks, we have to rethink that. And and that's that's not going to play a role anymore. And when you talk about combinators and things, I'm, I think I think we are, personally, I, I want to actually go beyond that. I want to start like really finding logic purely from A big compositional paradigm where a a world about composition what is the new kind of logic we're going to have it's not going to be about propositions it's going to be something else i mean that's my program for the future i mean i I know my i mean that's that's my plan that i'm going to do within cqc like this i've got my i mean i I defined a few themes as people who actually implementing stuff on quantum computers and people who are developing software i'm going to come up with new theories that's my (laughs) team that's what i'm going to do i'm going to be freer than at university
0: Okay, it's a good theory. That's, my plan. Oh, That's mean, my plan. That's my plan. So, so you're reversing. I mean, the kind of Aristotle to Frege kind of tradition of of base everything on logic. Your your idea is base everything on essentially structure and deduce logic from structure in some way. I mean, I mean, it, logic is
1: going to mean something else. I think. I mean. I mean, I, I, I actually, there was at some point a Twitter discussion where you mentioned some, somebody brought up that you mentioned something about XOR and NAND and stuff like that, not existing in language. So, so, I mean, I think it's even worse than that. I don't think not existing language, because the way we actually use not is has nothing to do with logical not when I say I don't want the beer. I don't mean mean. I want the pink elephant, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm, maybe I want the glass of water, maybe I want the glass of wine. So, so these things are all completely different. So, so, so it's much more embedded in like a notion of context and scope and stuff like that. So to, for me, the place to start thinking about these things is compositional theory, where you've got different sort of arenas which you compose. And sometimes you you restrict, sometimes you expand. It, it's it's. It's, we have to sort of embrace the fact that we live in a humongous universe. And sometimes we have to go local and not in the way we as humans use it, for example, it's, it's localized to a context. So this should become part of science. Like maths has been built up, here is a space and we stick inside the space and that's it. No, like, like we, we work local within something which is part of a bigger space. And, and we have to be adaptive to the space. We, I mean, we need to develop this kind of maths and not not maths, we need to develop this kind of view of reality. That's my that's that's what I want to focus on. And I think machine learning, the one thing that did is put the finger on the problem with old stuff like traditional logic and, and traditional linguistics is part of the problem there too.
0: Well, I think I think one of the things you're perhaps highlighting is, I mean, I, I very much agree with you that logic in the Aristotle type tradition is a fairly specific idea that is not a, not in a sense, a fundamental idea. It is an idea that in its original form was intended to capture certain aspects of how humans think about things. And I'm not sure that it was, it's only a very small part of that story as well. But I think that the, you know, the question of what the set of all possible theories is, logic is not a good foundation for understanding the set of all possible theories. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a fairly specific idea. But yeah, I think
1: I, the,
0: with I mean, the, the challenges I see it, and you know, you're bringing in linguistics. One of the challenges is that it's humans who are doing the science and the mathematics. And in a sense, there's this sort of challenge that there's the set of all possible things over here and the set of things that we can think about computing with. And there's a, then there's a set of things that we humans actually care about and think about, which are to some extent captured by human language. And, you know, one of the challenges is how do you match those two things up? Because there are many things that you could imagine formally that we humans don't care about, have a very hard time thinking about. Our language captures that subset of things that we tend to be able to think about and to care about. And, you know, I mean, my, my lifelong effort of building computational language is, is is all about kind of trying to capture the essence of what it is about human thinking that can be made sort of uh, uh, computational and, and, and kind of, you know, what part of the world of computation do we humans care about? I mean, you, you say that, that for example, uh, you know, human language does not map well onto logic and I agree. I mean, that, that's a, you know, logic is a tiny corner of the things that we express in human language. Um, and it's, uh, you know, people in the early days of AI was saying, you know, we'll just encode all of human knowledge as logic, and that was disastrous. Yeah, yeah. It really doesn't work. Exactly. Um, but, but, but I mean, I guess my question would be, and, and the thing that I find interesting in, in what I understand of your approach is, you know, I sort of understand this, this kind of structural way of building things up. You have, you have some structure, could be combinators, could be symbolic expressions. You're building up a structure, then you are something is transforming that structure. And, you know, the most common thing that we see is programs that take a structure and progressively transform it. I think in your compositionality concept, a lot of what you're talking about is so these parallel threads of history that, I mean, you know, I I think the essence of quantum mechanics, I think, I suspect we very much agree about this point, that the essence of quantum mechanics is this fact that you can kind of have these these multiple threads of history which become entangled. Um, and I guess my question would be in, in understanding, you know, traditional programming has very much been about you have a function like Lambda calculus, for example, you have some function, it applies to something else, it applies to something else. It's a very sequential kind of process. Whereas I think what you're describing is something where multiple threads of computation are happening uh, together and then you're trying to describe how that works. Is, is that yeah, a fair characterization? Yeah.
4: Uh, it, it's it's
1: the interaction structure. It's the interaction structure. I mean, one has to be careful with well, some people with multiple threats, then you may go to the Deutsch sort of multi-world thing, which is additive. I'm talking about multiplicative interaction. So tensor stuff. And uh, what makes, I mean, the, the reason probably this has not been uh, approached so much in computation is because it's computationally very expensive. When you start thinking about tensoring stuff, it's like, I mean it becomes humongous very quickly because you're expo- exponentially blowing up stuff. So I mean it it it's that that sort of justifies. I mean the only for me the only science which has taken this sort of stuff serious is computer science. Physics never even thought about the stuff that they, 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 they were all thinking about these things. Uh, uh, I mean, others, I mean, yeah, so computer science has such a big thing to bring to the world by actually, as such a big thing to bring to the world by now, seriously embracing this sort of compositional stuff at the same time. They have a problem with that because it's uncomp, it's, it's basically uncomputable. Uncom-
0: but when you think about it in terms of computer science, and I, I want to home in on what you mean by compositionality and ha- what this whole kind of paradigm is like, but in a sense, you know, in, in in computer science, the branch of computer science that's been dealing with this, if I understand correctly, is distributed computing. I mean, that's the that's the area where well, people traditional,
1: traditionally now now I would say computer science logic or something like that. The last twenty years there are dedicated conferences to all this stuff. I mean. Uh,
0: Applied to what?
1: I mean, starting to be applied to everything, hardware, design, and all that. I mean, I'm now, I'm now part of a new community, which is kind of called Applied Category Theory Community, which is a horrible name. I mean, John Baez is one of the, ma- I mean, two, like, major figures there is probably John Baez and me. We are pushing this community for people to actually start thinking in this sort of compositional term before you actually become obsessed with, like, the fine structure of, like, Mathematical structures,
0: but, but I mean, like John Baez has come to this from a very different angle. I mean, he was a very traditional physicist, doing field physicist, theory,
1: very traditional mathematical field
0: physicist, doing topological quantum field theory. Eventually, yes, yes, where
1: you end up doing exactly the same structures.
0: Huh. So that was how he came to this. Okay.
1: Yes, topological quantum field theory, which I mean mean, which which is a hard area of mathematics, exactly because of the computational problems once you throw in all these tensors. So, 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 I, I mean, uh, that's a question for you because you're—I know you're a physicist, like, like, and 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 you care about computation. Once you start throwing all these tensors, it it becomes horribly com- it becomes horrible computational. So that's why I'm going into quantum computing because I see no other way out. Like, I believe that this is the future of seeing the world but computationally like we can't
0: just do this on classical computers just no way we're ever going to do this well i mean i think there are multiple that's a that's a different topic perhaps but i mean there are multiple traditions that have led to this kind of what you're calling tensors i mean there's you know in in the world of for example general relativity or particle physics for that matter of
2: course course.
0: there, there are there are tensors with many indices and then people think about contracting these collections of tensors with many indices exactly. and they say it's really a graph where you know it's just a tensor as a node and then it's got these indices that correspond to edges and they connect in different ways and there were a variety of like roger penrose had a formalism i
1: mean i mean a penrose started all this diagram stuff because of the reason you say
0: but so what was that? What was the historical connection there? Because I mean Roger Penrose did that in the late 1950s, early 1960s, I think. As 70, a, 70, something 1970-ish.
1: Mm,
0: maybe. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, uh, at yeah. least that's what I know from papers.
0: Okay. Yeah, right. I mean, he wasn't, you know, I I knew Roger Penrose back in like mid-1970s, and he uh, wasn't particularly talking about that stuff then. It was something he had done but it wasn't something that was sort of the okay. center of his, his world in terms of what he was thinking okay. about. But, but I mean, in, in um, uh, but so, okay, so from physics, there was kind of this idea of this is an idealization of these complicated tensor expressions. But mm-hmm. uh, but that had no connection, so far as I know, with category theory at that point, or any of those kinds of ideas.
1: So so if, if you're talking about the maths now, like it had no connection. And I mean, it necessarily... It didn't have any it doesn't personally i don't think it necessarily needs a connection with category theory. where the category theory comes in is if you i mean you can you can directly relate these tensor calculate diagrams but where the connection comes in if, if you want to connect this to concrete mathematical models like the stuff you learn the set theory build stuff then you need category theory and actually it becomes actually a much more complicated once you throw in category theory in the picture, you have to sort of care about stuff like associativity. <laughs> and so, I mean, if I if I've got I've got three pens here, I've got three, I've got three pens here. I mean, there's three pens. Okay. If I do set theory, you have to care about like, okay, I've got two pens and I put a third one, or I got two pens and I put a third one. Actually, that's the same thing. You have to sort of say all these things, like, like that. If I put first these two, and then these two, and then I add the other one, that's actually the same thing. So then you end up doing these things like natural transformations and all this complicated stuff with the result that if you read a category theory book like uh, MacLean, that you have to go to page 250 to actually understand what it means to have three pens. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, So I'm not sort of... Telling anybody, oh, you have to learn in category three to understand like what it means to tensor three things together. I mean, I went through that. I went through that trajectory myself because there was just no other math doing that. And and I mean, and you couldn't publish a paper like saying, oh, I got three pens. That's very interesting. (laughs) You had to go. And I mean, that's a cultural thing, which I think since this is school, is important to say. We couldn't publish any paper if we did things diagrammatically. We had to write it down like category theoretically with the natural transformations and all the complicated stuff to get accepted to the computer science conferences.
0: Oh, really? So, but I mean, but yeah, computer I mean, science...
1: Otherwise it, look, it, otherwise, it didn't look difficult.
0: But in computer science, people were familiar from the electrical engineering tradition for things like wiring diagrams. So they yeah, have but seen still, diagrams.
1: That's a branch of computer science.
0: We were in sort of the logic
1: computer science semantic stuff and and there still people expected complicated theorems.
0: Okay, so it was a theorem-based area rather than a...
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean it had to I mean it had to look complicated anyway, like conferences like Clicks, which are the top conferences. I mean, you can you can come up with logic papers and stuff like that, it has to look sophisticated, like a paper I sometimes write now, like, oh you do know, this and this, it's so trivial. <laughs> you don't get that stuff in. And so- to be honest, like the first categorical quantum mechanics paper with by Samson and me from 2004 or something, which is now, now a very, very renowned paper or something like that, but only in because there happened to be like a friend of us in the program company who pushed really hard because there was so much objection.
0: Where was it published? What was it in the computer science?
1: Logic in Computer Science, IEEE. It's like okay. the main... The main, main there is this cultural sort of thing between like uh, Europe and, and the US. Like in, in the US, it's all algorithms and complexity. In Europe, it's a lot more like, I mean, you know, the traditional Oxford stuff you were talking about, like uh, combinator stuff and, and lambda calculus and this sort of like more structural stuff. And LIX is the biggest one there.
0: But so, so in, I mean, in, in logic and computer science, at one time that was all about decidability theory then it became sort of computational complexity theory. And what were the other, I mean, what did logic and computer science mean at the point when you were starting to talk about things I like mean, this
1: It's still, still very much like the American sort of view, the model theory stuff. Uh, in, Europe, in Europe, you can, I mean, if you got, you, you can publish category theory stuff. Category theory stuff is pretty okay. Right? And, and, and more and more and more, it's, it's becoming more prominent even now. If you now go to this uh, logical computer science conference, you see lots of diagrammatic papers now. It's becoming accepted. It's becoming accepted. Uh, I mean, they they do this in signal flow theory and stuff like that. And it's exact. I mean, this stuff looks exactly like zx calculus. I mean, they actually have every single of these papers refers to zx calculus. I mean, it's just pure computer science about like engineering stuff. They all refer to zx calculus because it's, it's the same thing. I mean, there's no f- complex phase and stuff like that, but it's the same kind of equations. It's because they're so generic. I mean, the way yeah. I think about the sort of the way I, I mean, I mean, you notice this too. I mean, I know, like, like the sort of work you do. You see, it's just generic stuff. This, there's, not, I mean, the X calculus it was just there for somebody. Yes, to I just think write it down. just for somebody to just write down, and it's just ridiculous that it was written down in the context of quantum mechanics.
0: Right. Well, I mean, I think these multi-way graphs that we study a lot, which is the same tradition. I mean, yes. you know, that, that has you know these ideas have been rediscovered many times in many fields. Exactly. They have a, um, they've been. But but I'm curious in the in the life of category theory. I mean, so category theory arose with people like Saunders Mac from from sort of the algebraic topology kind of you know uh, sort of finding a framework for describing these kinds of mathematical. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, how did that, um, I mean, you know, that that arose in the U.S. primarily, right? In, in um, uh, uh, The it...
1: Manhattan Project. Which? Manhattan Project.
0: I don't think those guys were much connected.
1: They, uh, from what I understand, like, I mean, they were not much connected, but I mean, they were working there, and I don't know how much they contribute, but they wrote their first paper while they were actually, like, like sort of, Taken there and to work on the Manhattan Project because most scientists were. So I, if, I, I, that 9, surprises me day, because look at, I... day, look at a day, 1945. So so they wrote this thing down. I mean, this is independent of. I mean, I'm not saying this had anything to do with the Manhattan Project, but they were actually there. And in the evenings, they did their work together, and they came up with like.
4: This is that? at Columbia. It's it's just, McClain was at Columbia doing this. He was like pulled in like everyone else at the time for the World War II effort. What was he I mean I I mean I knew probably know better, right. Am I right? What's
1: that? Yeah, yeah I'm asking. I don't think I, think
4: I don't think it's like directly related but you're right they were part of the effort of the Manhattan project as it was being done at Columbia. Like I don't know that. the details yeah. of what they did but McClain yeah. certainly Something was. Like that. I don't know the details.
5: The Manhattan Project was not only in Los Alamos. It was located in Los Alamos and at a number of universities, including Columbia. Yes, yes, yes. Okay.
0: Well, that's a piece of history I didn't know, because I, I, I knew many of the physicists who worked on the Manhattan Project, and uh, those people would have been horrified by category theory. I mean, they were all kind of 19th century mathematics type people.
1: This wasn't what they do, were doing for the project. They were just doing this in the evenings.
0: No, it's interesting. I, I, I'm
2: the hobby thing.
0: I mean, I, I do know that that uh, Saunders mclean subsequently worked on a number of things related to things like cryptography and so on. That right. was which was another that was another branch of kind of uh, American mathematics. But um, but okay, so 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 far as I know, at that time there was no connection between the category theory people and the physicists.
1: Oh, nothing. I mean, I mean, at the time, like category theory didn't exist. I mean, it was just that one paper. Really, like like category theory in itself like start, okay, so that's a completely different story. Like category theory I think sort of kicked off with LeVere in the 60s. Levier was sort of, I mean, the first one who actually started pushing the topic but to the same, I mean, to the same extent, they they kind of suffocated the topic. Like they were very sort of uh, isolated, uh, like self-imposed isolation, because they kind of like declared themselves disconnected from the from the rest of mathematics. Like they they, they thought like what we are doing is so much better than what everybody was doing, and, and it was some sort of arrogant mentality, and that basically kind of suffocated the subject in the end. As a as a subject, uh, as something like an alone standing subject in mathematics what happened on the other hand is like people gradually start using bits and here and there of category theory and that's how basically category moved on so all the pure category theory groups like when i was in in the night i mean in the 90s they were all dying out like all the big category theories like montreal and all that there was like like 15 people in montreal they were all just I went to Montreal basically, like and it was just all these retired people. There was no following up all. They were all, I mean, it was just completely dying out. But then category theory became sort of absorbed in, in without like being like a, a subject in its own right.
0: So but, when it was a subject in its own right, was it connected to logic and things? Was that the um
1: Yeah, they, because of people like Dana Scott and stuff like that?
0: Okay.
5: I mean, well, I mean, I don't uh, think
0: Dana was ever that serious about category theory as such. I mean, he, uh, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's one of the many yeah, things. But that's what may, I mean. Uh, I mean, Jim Lombeck, Jim
1: Lombeck like, is one of the pioneers of logic. Like, but these were like the loose category theoreticians. They weren't sort of part of the hardcore. Actually, they weren't Lambek wasn't even taken seriously by the hardcore because he was like doing language and stuff like that. What was so? So he
0: he came out of this tradition of what became categorical grammar and things like this, right? The, the, yeah, started,
1: exactly. I mean, this was in 57. This was before, like, 56, 55, 56, before actually category theory, everybody knew about it. But, I mean, he kind of invented linear logic, for example, in his, his first grammar paper.
0: But so, so there was this tradition of, I mean, the idea of representing language, human language, in some formal way, which you know, one might say dated back to, you know, antiquity with people like Panini and so on. Um, but well, then in more recent times, I mean, most people would say that really got launched with Chomsky and the whole uh, generative grammar idea in the mid-1950s. But as I understand it, this was a different strand. This, this was the, the Ajukowitz or whatever his name is. Ajukowitz
1: um, was earlier. Huh? He was earlier, yeah.
0: Right, but, but he had a, th- that was a formalization. I mean, Ajukowitz to Lambeck, was a different formalization of of natural, of human language, is that, is that right? I
1: mean, it was kind of the same thing, it's like, when do you decide that, uh, that, like, when you take types, I mean, the idea is to assign types, and then, it's very much like computer science, you assign types, and then you, you decide, when is a sentence, well, formed, like, types match, and stuff like that, it's very much, it's very much a computer science idea, you know, and, and, I mean, Adjoukiewicz started it, and Alambic, like, really, I would say like got it completely right for the first time. And then CCG and all
0: that. People are still using all that stuff, you know, CCGs. And that like, was, was was that the Montague grammar business as well? Was that connected well, Monta- to all of Well, Montague,
1: I think is going to die because Montague was basically like thinking of language as being true or false and then trying to put it all in a logic framework. Exactly like we were talking earlier. You can't put all of language in a logic framework. That's what Montague did. but, but I mean, to some extent, people say, OK, Monte Guido was a brilliant piece of work. But that's, again, what the machine learning people say now. OK, we, that stuff is bullshit because we can't use it. And then the reason we can't use it is because they put it all in logic terms. It was all, this was all like first order logic. All of language is first order logic. And the only thing we can decide on is whether something is true or false.
0: You mean as a semantic fact? Which is, I yeah, mean, he, he a was, fact. I mean, Yeah, well, that, that's how. When I
1: tell you the sun shines, it's not about true or false. It, I, mean, I mean, it means like you get heat on
0: you, you know? But, but <laughs> so, so the stuff that the Lambek tradition is, is more about, I mean, that's a more syntactic tradition of understanding how you put sentences together? Uh, I mean, knowing
1: Lambeck personally well, like, uh, uh, I mean, for him, it was more a psychological thing. Like how do we think? how does language work, and stuff like that? and that's why during his life, he actually started to like denounce his own theory several times
0: and that's and like chomsky he's he's denounced his theory many times, yeah, yeah I,
1: mean, like, I mean yeah like like Wittgenstein.
0: <laughs> but so so what was lambek's idea what was what was his kind of uh, did he have sort of a model of of human thinking that was mapped into his I categorical mean, I,
1: I mean he, he was not a person who sort of said alone like but like the reason he sort of denounced is for this is about like per, particular categorical structures. So he denounced the, the Chomsky stuff with the trees because it says we don't build trees in our heads and stuff like that. We as humans don't do this. Our our thing is much more basic than that. So we ended up with these uh pre-groups, which is basically just a bunch of wires between things, which is where we start. It it looks like uh, monoidal categorical diagrams. I would never have gotten into language if we wouldn't have done this, because otherwise, I mean I it looks too complicated for me and I don't do complicated stuff. So it's just a between like, okay, you got a, you got a verb, you got an object and a subject and they feed into the verb. Like, that's it. So it's like wiring circuits together. That that was his uh, sort of last What's the
3: name? Of, sorry, can you repeat the name of this particular
0: academic? Lambeck. L-A-M-B-E-K.
1: Jim Lambeck. Jim Lambeck. Jim Lambeck. Like, I mean, he is, mean, for me, he's one of the... Biggest category theoreticians ever, like he. Can, I mean, categorical logic starts with him. But he, uh, like he, he, has this paper, the mathematics of uh, sentence structure from '56, which basically invented linear logic, long before Girard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah, that's Jim Lambic. Like I mean, but, I mean just just for, because it's I mean I know it's like day there it's late now it's very late here it's my evening so I moved to Montreal for a postdoc after like my horrible career stuff I was talking about before and I didn't have a place to live so I just was squatting in Jim Lombick's house for a couple of months <laughs> but I mean he knew me from before because he had been to Brussels and he liked hanging out with me and, and we were very close friends for like
0: what, was, he, was he a kind of a, a, a formal mathematical kind of person or was he a more he of a... Right?
1: So he was a theoretician. So he has a very interesting story of life because he ran away from, from Germany because of uh, the Nazis and all that. So and he, he was in jail for a long time because he thought he was in Nazi and stuff like that while he was a little kid. So it was 80, 90. And so he has a very nice, very beautiful life history there, the way he ended up in Canada and stuff like that. But he was a pure mathematician. And, and like, the reason we used symbol R for a ring is thanks to him. (laughs) Okay. So one of the... When you talk to a ring theoretician, they still say that Lambeck's book from 1960 or something like that was the most beautiful introduction to ring theory. But He was a pure mathematician.
0: But so when he was thinking about language and he was defining these rules for sort of how sentences would get put together, what did he think the output... uh, Were these rules essentially prescriptions for what sentences can occur, or no, were they...
1: Okay. They
0: never put sentences
1: together. They put words together to form a sentence. Fair enough. They never got any, any further than that.
0: Okay, but, but so but, but when he was doing that, was he thinking it was like a grammar, like a context-free language or something like that, where it would define these are the sentences which are possible, these other sentences are not possible. Or did he imagine that there was more of a, of a computation where it had a semantic you know, output from the sentence?
1: Never thought about that. I mean, he was thinking about it, he, he was thinking about that, but they never sort of realized that. Yet is in mind to some extent. Now, when we start to do exactly what you're saying, because that's what we're doing, we took that stuff and we said, then we saw that there was a lot of bugs there. Like the idea of a sentence, because these people had like something like a sentence time. And what is a sentence type? Like, uh, it's where everything exists. So, if you if you if you take a type and you turn into something where actually stuff lives, so you go from noun as a label to noun as where stuff lives. Noun lives, and you, you go from sentence to a label to sentence where stuff lives. I mean, I mean it's, it's too big. It's not something you can fit anywhere. So. So from our perspective, the idea of a sentence type was completely wrong. And in the sort of work we have been doing now recently, like that doesn't exist something anymore like a sentence type. It's only noun types. And for me, I mean, my slogan now about language is like a sentence is something which changes the meaning of nouns, which is a kind of a departure from what people in machine learning are doing because meanings for them are static. For me, meanings are dynamical things. They constantly change. Like, I mean, if you if you read a book, what happens? Like, you learn more. Things change all the time. GPT-3 doesn't know COVID existed, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, well, language is... It,
3: well, it doesn't know that.
0: But so, so in your interpretation, I mean, if we look at the set of all sentences that are being said today, they contain certain nouns. And you say the meaning of those nouns is defined by... Their context in the set of sentences that are being said today. Is that is that kind of the It's an
1: evolving thing like a physics? It's not a static thing, it's an evolving thing.
0: No, I, I understand, but
1: but so for me, the noun, the, for me, the noun is not a state. It's a, it's it's a, yeah, it's a type which evolves. Type is actually a good word in that sense. I mean you start with nothing, you know nothing, and then you start saying things and it starts evolving. So so the model of language we're building now is really like that, like circuits, like you start, you know, you have no knowledge, and then when the sentence starts, you start learning things and so you've got a process where you learn things and a sentence is like a gate, which, which changes the meaning of stuff. Now, another thing in, in the recent work, which we did, I mean, uh, it's, it's that I mean, I'm sorry to say so, too, because, because I love all the Lambic and all these people, but a lot of these structures they came up with, they're just artifacts of human disability. What do I mean by human disability? The fact that we can only speak one dimensional. We can just say one word at a time. We're, we're trying to describe something, the world around us. The world around us is not sequential. It doesn't live on a line.
0: I think I the way we think is quite sequential, though. You still think? You think that? I think That's
1: so. a interesting conversation. <laughs> I, I think
0: it's a fundamental feature. I think if that wasn't the case, I think we would conclude that physics was very different. In other words, I think that our sequentiality, our belief that there is a, a thread of time is critical. Although, thread of time, yes, totally. But one-dimensional.
1: By one-dimensional, I mean like, You just got event like when we speak one word one word we can't say words in parallel that's a very different thing from sequential
0: no i think i think though that the way that people think about things is very sequentialized that is it isn't the case that you know when we try and do parallel programming and things like that when we try and program you know we try and write have languages that describe parallel computation and so on it's pretty difficult for humans to understand how that works and I think so, that's a... So maybe,
1: maybe you confirm what I'm saying. It's human limitation because the meaning of language... Yes, I, I think so. The meaning of language doesn't want to be one-dimensional.
3: It's clear. It doesn't want to be. I and, have to point out, I have to point out that Ted Chiang's story, Story of Your Life, which is we, about Ted, Chi, Ted Chiang. Can you not hear
0: me? Yeah. Yeah, we can t- we can, Yes. You can, Ted you can...
3: Chang's story of my life, which is about aliens that have a graph theoretic representation of language, is something that connects directly to what you're saying, Bob. And Stephen worked on the movie, so it's like a weird,
0: which weird one? union. Well, the of... the movie. <laughs> what are you talking um, about? No, no. So, so this was a okay. So there's a movie that was called Arrival that was um, that was based on this story, and the story is interesting because the story, um, even though I've, I've, you know, strangely. Well, the the different story. The the person who wrote the the short story is a very reclusive person who I've never interacted with. So I can't can't say much about him, but um, uh, it's about these aliens who don't have our standard view of time. In other words, in physics, for example, we are used to, you know, there's a way of describing how things work by equations of motion, where it's kind of a, a mechanical process. We go from one moment in time to the next and so on. The alternative approach, is action principles and things where we say, you know, this is the this is the path that will be chosen out of all possible paths, and that's kind of a, a not a sequentialized in time, or it seems like it's not a sequentialized in time approach. And so, this story is about these aliens whose view of time is much more like an action principle. That is, it's a more holistic view of time rather than a sequentialized view of time, yeah. and you know, somewhat amazingly this actually turned into a pretty good movie. I mean, the script of this movie, as you might imagine from the fact that it didn't have, you know, in a sense, uh, you know, stories are narratives which tend to be very sequential. I mean, the the notion of narrative tends to be very sequential. So when you have a movie that is all about these aliens whose notion of time is not sequential, this is a a very challenging thing. And I I have to say the... the uh, the final movie that came out is really quite good and it's it's quite a tribute to the director that he managed to put the whole thing together in a way that, that uh that what's that well
1: what, what movie is this
0: it's called arrival. It's a dennis
3: villeneuve movie
0: yeah right it's 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 the it's a it, dennis has, has now gone on to to uh after arrival arrival was like four or five years ago and um uh that movie was successful enough that he's he'd done a bunch of other successful movies before but then he was the he did the remake of Blade Runner, and now he's just about to bring oh, out. A
2: dude.
0: Wait,
1: arrival. I think I saw it then.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: I, I think I saw it. Okay, okay, cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that that movie, the the no, that my my son Christopher was the main one who really contributed to that because he wrote the code that is uh, that it's one of the only movies where the code you see that the quote scientists in the movie are using is actually the code that's producing the pictures in the movie, so to speak. Most of the see, time. Most of the time it's just, you know, a dump of some piece of Linux that <laughs> go on the screen. But, but anyway, the, the but back to, back to... But I just um, want
3: to clarify, the reason that I mentioned that is not so much the stuff about time, it's that the languages in that, uh, the the aliens in that original story, and this wasn't preserved by the movie because I think it was too technical an idea, but the aliens in the original story by Ted Chiang, it's a really good story, I recommend it to anyone here, they use a graphical language. So, their no, no, language is
1: I not a I, I completely
3: remember the movie. I've seen the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen the movie. I've seen the movie. That gets right. simplified into a circle, but it's much more interesting in the, in the short story. Oh, I've,
0: seen, I, the okay. movie. I've I,
3: seen the movie. Now I remember. I've seen the movie.
0: Yeah, I didn't. I actually don't remember that part of the story, Tally. I'll have to look at that again. But, but, okay. So, I mean, you know, I know from, I mean, just as a language designer, which is what I've spent a lot of my life doing. And Talley has worked with me for many years doing language design. So he he uh, uh, he knows this tradition very well. I mean, you know, one of the challenges in language design is what can the humans actually understand? And the, the the fact is that what, you know, I have long thought, can we actually have programs that are described as graphs and things like this? And it has been very difficult to get humans to understand things that are not essentially sequentializable. And that's some... Um, uh, I get I mean, that, I get
1: that. So, but that, that that there's one thing, like, there's like, what can humans understand? And there is one, there is what actually is the essential
0: stuff. In no, I know, I agree. I agree. The, the and how do a... you
1: make a machine, like, reason with that efficiently? Those are two different things.
0: Right, but so what you would like to have is a disembodied notion of meaning. So you would exactly. like to...
1: That's what I'm talking. Well... Well, I mean, it depends what you call disembodied. Disembodied in the sense, like get rid of the sequential stuff, but we have to keep the embodiment because the the thing still needs to realize that we live like in physical space and stuff like that. Like, because that, I mean, that sort of context, you can't get rid of, right?
0: Well, I mean, my view of this is that the, the, the practical version of meaning is the ability to do computation. So, for example, if you say you have a sentence, you know, Bob has a skeleton in the background, for example, um, and uh, uh, only
1: one, only two, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the,
0: um, you know, so the question is, what do I, you know, can I turn that into a, a thing from which I can compute things? In other words, that's natural. You know, so, so for example, in you know, in our Wolfram Alpha effort, um, we might say. Uh, Oh, something like, um, uh, you know, Bob is drinking this kind of whatever you're drinking, you know, beer or something. I don't know what it is or, or, or soda or something. Um, OK, but, but and then what we can do, we would turn that into a this, at least the soda part we can define very precisely as a computational thing. And we know it's this kind of soda, and it has this amount of potassium in it. And it's, you know, it's a thing, it's a computationally describable thing that we can then know all these properties of it, and we can compute things about it. We can say, given that it was this volume of can, you know, what's the mass of the soda, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's a way that we can anchor meaning for something. We say, if we can turn that natural language into something that is some computational construct that we can then compute from, that to me is an anchoring of meaning. And for example, if we say, uh, you know, Bob is drinking that drink, then you might ask, well, what can we do based on that sentence? What kind of hard anchoring and computation can we get from that sentence? So for example, you might have a contract that says, you know, as the professor of whatever, you're not allowed to drink this kind of thing. And so you might have a, a definition. You know, there might be a computational contract that says, you know, as a, uh, you know, your, your employment contract might say, um, you can only drink this type of thing and that type of thing. And then what would be the, 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 the place where the meaning would become sort of computational is defining, for example, let's say you're not allowed to drink, uh, you know, alcoholic drinks, where alcoholic means more than X percent made of alcohol or something. Mm-hmm. And then, then the point would be that you would, that's where sort of the true meaning would come in, is because when you, when you say this, you know, you have this, this sentence that says, you're not allowed to drink alcoholic drinks. Okay, what does that actually mean? It means this thing that can be precisely written as a computation that you can then go and run against a statement about the world and determine, you know, did Bob drink the drink he wasn't supposed to drink and so on. I mean, so... In other words, what I'm getting at is what does it mean? How do you anchor, you know, let say another thing about meaning. So, so one of the things, you know, before we did Wolf Alpha, people have been talking about making question answering systems for 50 years sure. Sure. And, and they had always failed. And part of the reason was that they had been, they've been saying, we're going to understand language and we're going to, but the question was, what was the back end of that? What were they going to turn the understanding into? And the reason we were able to be successful is we already had this underlying computational language into which we could turn the natural language. So in other words, people who were abstractly trying to turn natural language into some abstracted notion of meaning, that just didn't work. Because the reason we could be successful is because we had this, this hard kind of anchor of that we have this computational language and we can compute things about the world from this computational language. And so my, my feeling is that this idea of, of a, an abstract notion of meaning that sort of just sort of floats around, I don't, I don't really buy that, that, that concept. I mean, I think that there's a, there's a sense in which we can do things like we can say, you know, the, the, we, there's this hard anchoring of meaning in terms of computation, And then there's an exposure of that meaning as natural language. And that's a very fuzzy thing. And when you expose it in terms of natural language and we say, for example, what's an alcoholic drink? Well, that might change over time. What counts as an alcoholic drink? It might be this percentage alcohol. It might be that kind of alcohol. It might be this, that, and the other. And and that's something where there's fuzziness and sort of how that's exposed as a thing that we humans well, talk about. The, the way I
1: think about it is like, I mean, I, I agree with you, like that there, there is just, obviously you need something computational, but uh, there is the difference between the top down and the bottom up stuff. Like, like is the meaning defined by, by what you can do initially or is the meaning defined by what you can do potentially? Like when you say alcoholic drink, like, and you don't have enough context, it may mean nothing. Because obviously, like, if I take some apple juice, it's an alcoholic drink. There's alcohol mm-hmm. in there. So, so the, the, the alcoholism, de- alcoholic content depends on, like, the social context of who's actually going to sort of perceive it. And, and sort of the way I'm starting to think about meaning now, I mean, this new thing for me, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I've been thinking about meaning very reductionist for a long time because I didn't know anything about this. I was, I was I was just a bloody physicist, you know, right? I didn't know anything about it. So, I mean, I knew some category theory and stuff, but I was thinking very like, we we are phys... I mean, you know this. You, you, you've you been trained as phys... We we initially are trained as bloody reductionists. You know? <laughs> I mean, you have to fight that thing. You have to fight that thing your whole life because you're indoctrinated with that stuff. But now I'm actually totally getting into the idea like that. That, that stuff should come top down. And that's a new challenge. That's a new challenge. How do you do that? And that's a very new challenge for computation too, I think, because computation hasn't been, I mean, math definitely has been, physics was never set up like that. Maths was never set up like that. Computation was never set up like that. So how are we gonna do that?
5: Well, I mean, so, top can down I can come go, go ahead. I, I'm not sure if we're supposed to just sort of be following because this is a fascinating conversation, or if it's okay for us to interject some comments.
0: Well, th- by all means, interject. But I think it's probably easier if you. Uh, I I should look at all these chat comments that have come in because we can we could try and address so the these. Flow, flow. Th- there's a whole flow of of. Uh, Wait,
1: can I get? I mean, it's late. Can I go to the loop,
0: <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. We'll we'll, we'll see in a minute. But, um, let's see. Let me. Uh, look at some of these comments here. Um, I'm going to try and talk a little bit more about compositionality because I think I, I want to really understand what what Bob, you know, how Bob thinks about that, and uh, what on earth does Bob have in there in his in his um, uh, actual physical environment there? It's 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 like a movie set behind him there. Um, I'm kind of wondering about that um, the uh, the skeleton with the um, with the attached. Live head thing, that's very odd. Um, perhaps some, but maybe Sagan's face on there. Satan, you think? Sagan,
5: no, Carl Sagan. Hmm, I would, I would
0: doubt that. We can ask. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Oh, Ross that Duncan. One. Okay, okay, somebody who who um who Bob works with, okay. Who hopefully is in better condition than, than the um uh um it's um I guess we have to ask maybe we shouldn't ask Bob whose skeletons these are.
3: Well, do you remember that hilarious moment where Bob delivered his talk we invited him to do a colloquium and he he delivered his talk and the real um so, what is his name of his collaborator Ross again? Ross Duncan, I think. Yeah, yeah. The real Ross Duncan was kind of masquerading as a skeleton for quite a long time, and then you. Yes, yes. Actually, I remember <laughs> that.
0: Yes, yes. That that is a, that's a that's a pretty good piece of camouflage. The, some. I'm back. <laughs> okay. Okay. So so.
1: Actually, I'm... I'm yeah, what time I'm, is it there now?
0: It's Like four... Central. What time it, is it there now? Well, where's the there? We're, we're, there's probably about 35 oh. people here, and they're all in
1: there. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry.
0: So there, so there are some people who are on the... For me, it is 5.30 uh, p.m. Okay. For the people who are on this... Uh, okay, for somebody else, it's 2.30. For other people, it's 5 in the morning. It's, uh, the, you know... We, we are inconveniently... We live on a spherical planet. i um, <laughs> It might be this is one of these times when the the flat earth would be convenient um the, yes the but but um, uh, no I'm, I'm curious i mean we're talking a little bit about language and i know that's that's a current interest of yours but i'm but i really am curious about this whole concept of compositionality and and how you view kind of this you know we, we talked a little bit about this idea well you're we, we just starting to talk about top-down versus bottom-up theories of things and I suppose, I mean, in um, do you think that is a story that relates to this composition question, or you think that's an independent? Uh,
1: I mean, I mean, compositionality. I mean, I mean it's a word. Like, uh, as far as I know, the only person who has people who have properly defined is are linguists, and and that's actually a definition which can't be, which is not the way I use it. In like linguists, what did they used to say? Like. Uh, like the whole can be determined from the story of the parts and the structure. I mean that, that's very much from Montague, you know. It's very much Montague. Yes. But that that's 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 a story which
0: definitely can't be maintained. So, so, for for a linguist, their belief is that the meaning of the whole is derived from the meaning of the parts
1: and the structure. I mean, that's an important qualification. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not as naive like a. You know the two bits, you put them together. Like there's a structure, and then typically it means you know the meaning of the words, you know the grammar, and that gives you the meaning of the sense, which to a certain extent is true. But as the way, if you, if you, I mean, I mean, it's something which you naively accept, which you naively accept. I've, I've accepted this naively for many years. But then when you start to do practical stuff, it doesn't work because most of the meaning comes from the context. It's. Uh, I mean, it's not, and it's not by stupid little side examples. It's, it's like there's so much meaning which comes like from the context, and it's both the context of the text, it's both the context of you being where you are, me being here, and sort of particular conversation we have. A lot of the stuff we 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 say gets only meaning by the fact that we have this particular conversation now between the two of us. You
0: and you not- know, I'll, I'll make a very practical point, which is that. I thought that context was going to be critically important in useful meaning. When we started building Wolfram Alpha, I thought we would have to know a whole bunch of stuff about the people who are asking, you know, random questions of what's now in Syria and Alexa and these other places, right? I thought we'd have to know who's asking that question. You know, are they, what, what, what's their story? It turned out we needed to know for the kinds of questions that we're answering, uh-huh. which, is, which, you know, is a is a wide variety of kind of general knowledge type questions. You don't need to know much at all about the people asking.
1: I can understand it for general knowledge type questions, but like, if I want to know whether you're now happy or not talking to me, I need to know a little bit more.
0: Yes, you, know? you do. Something like sentiment analysis is yeah, very poorly.
1: That sort of thing which I'm talking about, like then it becomes a completely different ball game. And, right. Uh,
0: but I think, I think nailing that down, I mean, to me, one of the use cases that really helps nail that down is computational contracts. That is, if or you say, want to... What's that? Computational contracts, what does that mean? I don't know if well, so it means, it means you, know, you, you write an employment contract, let's say, or you write, um, and right now you would write that in English or legalese. But the, the idea is to write it in a computational language. And this is something that you know, in, in the blockchain world, Smart. I know, I know, I know
1: people you. have been trying to do that there. I've got some form. You you know Fabrizio Genovese. Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> he was a former PNT. I mean, he's the first one who told me like I spent two hours talking to
2: Steven Wolfram. <laughs> right.
0: Well, actually, and the and the story behind that is one of the is a charming story because I was at um uh, I think South by Southwest, a kind of uh techie trade show type thing. Okay, well, and I'm wandering around this this trade show floor. Actually, with my son Christopher, and you know, there's there's one booth that somebody about uh, you know doing advertising by by injecting things into the upper atmosphere and having streaks of light in the upper atmosphere, and then the next booth is somebody with a giant robot, and then we get to Fabrizio's booth, and I say, "What do you do? What are you doing?" And he says, "I do categorification of Petri nets." And it's like. Okay, that's very different from the giant robot in the booth next door. <laughs> and I, I don't think Fabrizio particularly, you know, recognized me or anything. And it was just so funny that somebody would say something like this in, in what was a, you know, a technology trade show. And it's like, then for many people who would walk up to the booth, that the statement I do, categorification of Petronets, would be a, a complete <laughs> conversation ender. Um, <laughs> Anyway that was, that's a that's a, a fun thing but, but a I think
1: he's a very sweet guy like
0: but yeah right so I mean I think he he had an effort to um, uh, I mean the real question is if you take a standard legal contract which has various provisions like you know you can do this, you can't yeah. do that. the question is can you can you express that in a computational way? and you know perhaps some pieces of that will be, um, you know you might say Bob has to live within 10 miles of uh, you know the, the company headquarters or um, uh, and, and things like this and I think that's a place where this you know for a long time when people have talked about natural language understanding they haven't had a use case and that means that they can it sort of flops around without um, uh, without really uh, having you know with, without having good definition um, and, uh, um, and and so, you know, to me, like this question answering thing that we've done with Wolfram Alpha is one example where natural language understanding has a use case and computational contracts um, is kind of another important place where you get to take sort of statements about the, the real world and try and uh, do things with them in a sort of, in a way where the meaning matters, so to speak.
1: So yeah, I, I'm trying to get uh, to the understanding now of what natural language understanding means, like because um, I mean, understanding can mean I, I'm trying, I'm starting to understand what you say, like understanding just means like really understanding the logical propositional comp. Am I? Is this well?
0: Like, yes, but except that that's, but but then you're you're putting yourself in the box of logic, which I think we both agree is yes, the wrong yes. box.
1: Yeah, I, I know. I know, but it's a, some sort of formal understanding. Right? Well, right.
0: This is, this is what I've spent my life trying to build, is the thing is the target for that understanding, which is, you know, the computational language that we've been building with our whole Wolfram language system and so on is yeah. about representing things in the world computationally. And that that, to me, once we can represent the things computationally, we can, you know, we can do computations. We can use all of the apparatus that people have built with all the sort of algorithmic development and so on that's been done. And then for example, if we have these computational contracts that, you know, one contract says this, another one says that, we can figure out what the, what the net Im- implication of that is or whatever it is, we can, we can kind of, um, uh, you know, this allows us to actually, um, uh, it's not just make deductions because deductions sounds like logic. It's the raw material for computing with things. And so I think that the, you know, to me, the real target of natural language understanding and, and the, is, is convert natural language to computational language. And what we've done, what I've done in the last 40 years or so, is try and build up a computational language that can express many kinds of things. Not everything. I mean, a, an additional project is to do the kind of thing that people like Leibniz were trying to do with their sort of philosophical languages and so on, where you get in a sense, a symbolic representation for everything, including, you know, right now in our language, you know, the drink that you're drinking, I have no doubt we exists as an entity in our language and we know lots of things about it and we compute lots of stuff about it. The statement that you're drinking it is not one that is currently expressible in our language. Um, and once we have that, once we are able to express that, there will be conclusions, like for example, you know, if if um, oh, I don't know, in, in um, uh, you know, we'll be able to deduce things. Like if, if you say, uh, Bob is out in, in um, you know, he's doing a hike, and it's this temperature and this humidity. And um, then Bob has drunk such and such an amount of water in this number of hours. And then we have some model which we can compute with about, you know, Bob is going to be dehydrated at the end of the day or some such other thing. You know, that's a place where we can, we can take what is potentially a natural language description of Bob's been drinking a lot of you know this number of bottles of water or whatever and turn that into something which is then computational and which we can then you know make conclusions from I mean that's my that's my that's my way of thinking about what is the target for natural language understanding
1: I mean I mean I mean your notion of I mean the notion of computation of course very complicated to the extent that it's something decidable Is some because in a lot of these things when you start thinking about the models involved.
0: but I, I don't think, to me, to me, the story of computation is just a story of the following of definite rules.
1: Okay, so, so even if it's difficult, it doesn't matter.
0: Doesn't matter, doesn't matter. I mean, many things that, you know, in, in Wolfram language, there are many functions. You know, we have a function for solving Diophantine equations. In principle, that function cannot work. But in practice, <laughs> it works you know, very, very often, it's useful. I mean,
1: that's that's, that's what engineers always tell me. And that's the whole story of complexity. It's just worst case stuff. Just don't care about complexity because usually it's not the worst case. Well,
0: however, I mean, I would say that in in my own efforts, this whole idea of computational irreducibility, this notion that you can't know the outcome of a computation without running through the steps, that's been an important conceptual idea It's also an idea that I think at a philosophical level is kind of critical for making us feel good about our life, so to speak, because in a sense, if it wasn't for computational irreducibility, you know, you would know the answer to Bob's life is 42. There's no point in leading the life.
1: I mean, I I knew that a long time, so I'm happy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I mean, you know, this kind of concept that, um, uh, you know, that that kind of... um, uh that you have to actually go through the steps to find out what the outcome is you know that's a sort of story of of computational irreducibility that's a place where in some sense computational complexity is critically important to kind of the way that we we perceive the world and so on but i mean the you know i i I think we should we should let some other people ask some questions here but i'm also I, i i still want to get compositionality we said the, the the linguist's <laughs> definition of compositionality, uh, you know, is not the one you're using. So tell me, what what is compositionality to you?
1: Okay, so I'm actually I'm literally writing a paper this week because people keep on asking me. I say it's obvious. I say always oh, it's obvious. Most of my life has been like I mean it's obvious. It's obvious. <laughs> like, so uh, I'm I'm writing down. I mean. I think these diagrams, which you are using now, too, like like, is is Jonathan here somewhere? I mean, you can travel through them top down, bottom up. You can actually think of them as like building something. You can think of them in this decompositional ways and stuff like that. You can can go from a bigger one, decompose. That's for me what it means. I mean, mean, I've got a, a few side conditions to the extent these things have to mean something. They, have to, they, need, they need a counterpart in reality. They should be non-trivial, and that's about it. That's all you need to, to have like some sort of interesting story about reality. That's what I mean. And
0: the links linguistics- so let, me, let, me, let me break that down for a second. So, I mean, in our, in our world, one of the things we've looked at a lot of these multi-way systems, which are essentially diagrams built from rules. I mean, there is a definite rule, and... You know, that rule specifies how you, you know, you can construct states and events and all this kind of thing. So the kind of thing you're talking about, I mean, there's a, if you're I just- you talking
1: uh, about generation,
0: right? Uh, of diagrams. But, but I'm, I'm talking- talk-
1: But I understand from your program, it's a lot about generation.
0: Well, I mean, in, in, in the following sense, that we are, we're imagining that there are certain rules defined and then we look at the consequences of those rules. Yes, and it those generate, rules...
1: Generate, you produce stuff. Yes. Producing stuff. It's about producing models of this, producing. I mean, I mean. Uh, well,
0: uh, it's it's about producing the multi way system that represents the history of the universe, for example. That exactly, would be an example. Exactly. Like, I mean, it's producing producing a history of stuff. Yes. So,
1: so, so. so, so so the way I see it, I mean, that's, that's one part of, that's one application. I mean,
0: okay.
1: the, the other one is like, like sort of the other way around. You, you get a picture, how do you understand it? That's not generation, that's like decomposition. That's the other way around. And I think the structure needs to be able to do both ways.
0: And Well, this comes again idea. to this question about what is understanding, what is meaning? So, so for us... Exactly, move- exactly, exactly. Yeah, but so, so I mean, for us, one of the things that's interesting is, uh, you know, we think it's important to have an observer. You know, in other words, we have this whole multi-way graph that represents all possible histories of the universe and so on, but the question of what we conclude about how things work in physics is a story of an observer embedded within that system and that observer's perception of what's going on. So that's a, that the question of how the observer perceives what's happening in the system that's more, I think, something akin to what you're talking about with understanding and so on. That that's more the. I think. I think, I think the. I think the idea of an observer is to some extent
1: uh, tied to be, be, within generation thing. Like so, so, you generate something, you observe. Well, maybe not. Suppose, maybe you're right. Like maybe the observer observes something. Where did it come from? How do you decompose? So the structure, I mean, it's So you should have both at the same time. I mean, I don't think there yes. is, I mean, I mean, this is now. Now we're almost going religious. Like I don't believe that there it was. There was a generation, or there was some sort of reconstruction of. I mean, that's what we are doing as humans. we that's that's like a, the black hole thing, uh, the singularity thing. we I think they, they should both come at the same time.
0: Well, I think that, no such
1: know, thing as, I don't think there is a big bang, or there. I don't think there is a human reconstruction. I think it's all at the same time. Yeah. I mean, that's now a philosophical sort of thing. Well,
0: I think that you know okay, I mean so let's take that apart for a second. So, first thing is I don't think I think time is real in the following sense. You know, computational irreducibility is a phenomenon which tells you that to, you know, that there is something that is achieved by the progress of time. Time is not just a no, coordinate. I
2: completely,
0: I completely agree. Right. Okay. People
1: told me that. <laughs> I
0: agree okay. so so but I mean then the question is when uh, you know our experience of the universe is we are we are entities within the universe yes. so it's a slightly complicated thing to ask you know when we experience the universe we're essentially parsing certain features of the universe the universe is full of complicated things going on that involve computational irreducibility yet we when we understand the universe, we reduce the universe to something that is somewhat predictable to us. And we are sampling only some very small slice of what really exists in the universe. And the question of of what we slice, what we slice off, what, what kind of things do we pick out from what's there in the universe? And I think that's where you need some kind of theory of the observer to know what kind of things do we pick out. And that's where I think, for example, the sequentiality in time, and computational boundedness of observers, I think those are the essential features of observers that are needed so that we pick out the things that give us the laws of physics that we perceive to be correct. So, I mean, in other words, as aliens, if we were aliens, we might be picking out completely different features of the universe. You know, I think in analogy, in in statistical mechanics, if we look at, you know, molecules bouncing around in a gas, we as humans, just say, oh, we care about pressure and temperature. But some Maxwell's demon alien might be saying, you missed the point completely. What matters is these little detailed things that happen with these little swirls of molecules, and they work in this way and that way, and you missed the point. And so what I'm saying is that some characteristic of the observer, some essence of the observer is critical to understanding what features of the universe you pick out to make your physics about so to speak and I think that may be I mean that may be related to what you're saying in the sense that that um you're you know y- you're saying you can't I'm, I'm trying to parse this out I mean yeah yeah I'm not I'm not sure that these that your sort of philosophy of 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 how um uh well, I, I don't get it quite
1: no, I, I mean I, I think to some extent it's true. Like I mean there's two stories here. I, I could say two different things about what you say, but to some extent part of us creating the story of, of of history, creating the story of history is basically also like building it backwards according to our means. And that's what you're talking about about the story of the observer. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, so but I, I th- I, but I think it's i mean we we usually in mathematics and everything we do, and in computation we we sort of build we build things in one direction, we have to learn to build things in two directions, like sort of it's it's much more relational, of course, i mean relation is a stupid word, you know like but computation is very one directional, you know you compute and, and then you start from the from the assumptions to result, we should come to some sort of... Uh, well, yes, I
0: think I think what uh, you're saying... A and-
1: system where they come both together, you know, like... Because it's not that the Big Bang create whatever followed, it's, it's to some extent we are creating like our past. We are, I, I mean, we are redefining our past, and these stories should start to come hand in hand, and we have to generate the maths which which enable and computation is very one
0: directional. Well, I think most, most of it. Most of it. Most of it. Right. I mean, this is the Do you difference. Know Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, because it's mean, very
1: intuitive. It's very intuitive what I'm saying.
0: Right. I mean, so so for example, in our multi-way graphs, the whole okay ordinary computation, whether you're running a Turing machine, a cellular automata, and you know a typical program, there's a you know. It is a sequential thing. You do one thing, then you do the next thing. You do one thing; it produces yes. an output. You you apply your, you. yourself you. to. Exactly. You. Right. Okay. So the big difference in multiway systems is you have a state. There can be many outcomes. Those outcomes produce other states, and then there is an entanglement between states because two different outcome a, a given state may produce two different states. And those two states may subsequently merge in this multi-way graph. And I think that's critical both in our formalism and in your formalism, this idea that you can have a branching of states Excellent. and a merging of states, exactly. um, and I think
1: that- Time sort of vanishes. Like in the calculus thing, like for example, time vanishes.
0: I think that's-, that's uh... I'm not sure I would put it that way. I, I think what's, what happens is time is many- No, so you families. can put it in. You can put it in again. It's-, it's, no, no. it's
1: the way I think about it is like complex analysis. Like we know we're working on the real line, and then sometimes we go out somewhere, and then computation becomes much easier.
0: And then we yes. come back. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, but but I think, I mean, the way that I see multi-way systems, which I think is 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 similar to this. Uh, okay, ZX calculus, I think, is a little different because it's more equational, and multi-way systems tend to be more kind of uh, single directional, as in they are generation, generating. Generation. Yeah. But, but I mean, the, the point is that that uh, I think the difference is we usually think of time as being essentially one dimensional. It's a, you know, there's a thread of time. That's what, how computation typically works. In a multi-way system, there isn't a single thread of time. There are many branches, there are many fingers of time and they branch and they merge. And that, that process of branching and merging is something that is, I think, essential to, I think, the formalism that you've worked on a lot, the formalism that we're working on, is I think that, it uh, is-
1: Of course, I agree. I agree.
0: Course. Right, but I mean, I think but one of the things that's interesting there is in order to even know, okay, so computational irreducibility implies that an observer or one can't know what's going to happen except by running each step. What multi-way systems imply is even to know what has happened at a particular moment is non-trivial because there's no, there's no notion of this moment in time. There are many fingers of time. I
1: love that, I love that. Right, and so- I love that. I mean, the Greeks would have loved that. Some pre-Socratics. <laughs>
0: yes, 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 yes. Right, but I mean, so, so, you know, the idea is that to define the state of the world, so to speak, you have to have an observer, you have to have something that can knit together these different fingers of time. You have to, you, you don't get to say at time t equals 10 or something, this is the state of the world. And, and okay. so in other words, there's this, and I think that forces you into this kind of, you know, in order to deduce anything about the state of the world, you have to have a model of the observer. And, and by the way, you know, this idea is in a sense, there are two major precursors of this idea which are general relativity and quantum mechanics, both of which needed you know, a non-trivial notion of the observer. And they are, and I think it is not coincidental that our models end up reproducing general relativity and quantum mechanics because they're basically, they are the theories that you get by making certain assumptions about observers within this, this, uh, this kind of system that has this kind of branching, merging type thing. I mean, to to me, the thing that I think you're you're going towards, and I think we're also trying to go towards, is to get this bigger understanding of these branching and merging type systems. How should you understand exactly. what's happening? I, I think I'm going more top down, and you guys are going more like sort of. You're building it. Like well, I'm just. I, I want to I want to understand this top down idea because I mean you're, you're saying let, let's taking is is linguistics the best example or is there another good example of sort of? No, I mean down? I mean
1: I mean for me linguistics is a bad example. I mean. For me, I mean, I think linguistics was a very good place to look because uh, in, in the sort of last paper, I mean, last things we have been doing, they're not out in papers yet. Like, uh, in the, uh, we're still working on it because I think we're sort of taking away everything from language, which is sort of uh, language dependent. We're trying to see, look at the bare bones of language. When Chomsky was talking about universal language, I mean, nothing these guys did was universal at all. Like we're trying to actually extract the real universal content on how we speak. Then we get some stuff out of it. And as far and and what we get out of it, at the same time, we're now trying to build a model of space from, from the same structure. And so in my my understanding of that is like the way language emerged was like from an from understanding and interaction with space and stuff. I mean, just physical space, not relativistic. Well, I mean, I think physical space, to be honest, is relativistic by default. I don't think like, I think Euclid did a brilliant thing, but Einstein just sort of said, yeah, okay, like, I mean, we've well, always... Physical
0: space, a crucial fact about physical space for us humans is if I look at the environment that I'm in or the environment that you're in, the speed of light is very fast compared to the speed that our brains operate at. So as yeah. far as we're both concerned, there is a notion, you know, as we look around us, what we're seeing is a state of the world at a moment in time. It's okay to say that. We don't, if, if we, in other words, so, cause it could be the case if we lived, you know, let's say we were the size of planets, then uh-huh. the speed of light really matters. And we could no longer say that uh, you know, we could no longer talk about things in terms of successive moments in time. In fact, our model of computation that we have today that says things happen sequentially, one after another, we probably would not have built that model of computation if we were the size of planets.
1: And I don't think like, like in our sort of human perception that light and stuff like that is essential is, I want to touch you, so I have to move to you and I touch you. And it takes me some time. I think like, in our human sort of perception, like, things take time. I mean, it's some, something we're indoctrinated with in school first that actually, like... Anyway, that was a different conversation. Yeah, okay. but, but, but Yeah, where were you going? I completely lost the plot now. <laughs> because this is something which brings me back to my child, what you were just saying. I was thinking about this when I was five years old. I was breaking my head on this sort of thing when I was five years So what I was just saying, uh, oh, I was talking about language, right? Yes. yes, Okay, yes, yes. I was talking about language. So, 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 so we're building this new theory of language, like beyond Chomsky and all that. I think we are actually doing something really novel there. I mean, I think we're doing the first novel thing about language in the first, in the past 50 years, to be honest. I I actually Montague was sort of a detour, I think. I think we have to go back to Lombok and stuff like that to actually get on the right path. And This is really like putting language in how we humans understand it properly, and taking away defects which are to do with like the fact that we actually have to speak sequentially and stuff like that. Because and then making it closer to a reference of the world. And the way I think about it now, about the the structures we're seeing, they are like actually fundamental logical structures about the world. This, I mean, the reason language is the way it is through this glass of these new structures we come up with is basically like, yes, that's how we humans observe the world. That's that's our interaction with the world. That's why language is the way it is. The language, the way we have to get rid of some of the bureaucratic stuff, like which which is different in French, which is different in English, which is different in, in Persian, which is different in Chinese. Get rid of all this nonsense get to like the essence of the like the, the wirings the, the essence in language and then look at the world around us and it maps perfectly that i mean i, I don't have this in any i mean this is stuff i'm working on now like
0: well so, uh, so i must um, say that i find some of that i'm i'm skeptical because you know the the, the um, <laughs> no i i think what's i mean one what you're saying, I think, is, you know, what I'm saying is, there's this kind of computational language, can, which can express lots of things about the world. And I understand that fairly well. It's a practical thing, you know, it's uh, built, right. And it, you know, natural human natural language can be anchored in that computational language. But okay. I think what you're saying is that, that in a sense, okay, so so here's, here's a question, you know, if you just look at the structure of human language and yeah. you don't allow humans to do any experiments in the world, you, all you give them is a grammar book, okay? All you give them is structural information about language. Yes. Your contention, I think, is that from the pure way that human language is structured, that that is the way it is because of things about the physical world. No.
1: No. Totally
0: no, Totally not. Totally
1: not. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm basically saying the opposite. And I'm saying that's the reason why machine learning, modern machine learning, when they try to actually put in linguistic structure, it actually fails. It's too complicated. What I'm saying is like there's a lot of bureaucracy in linguistic structure. If you compare like English, I mean, if you. Sure, if you sure, sure. English with Persian or all that, like, like all these different languages, they, they got lots of complications going on. So what we what we have been doing is trying to identify like what's really universal about No, it.
0: no, I, I get that. But I think but what you're going, the, the point that I'm making is that I think that the, you know, when you say what's universal, there's in a sense the structure of the physical world, which is, yes. you know, it has a certain form. And there is a, so there is, the structure that the physical world has, and then there is a description of the structure of the physical world. Those are two different things. And then okay. there is the language okay. that is our, you know, as you say, bureaucratically imbued version of the description of the physical world. And what you, I think, you're implying is that there is a layer of description of the physical world which is below language, which is more universal than language. But which is not just the physical world itself. So the way I would put it is, there is the physical world in our models of, of the universe. There might be ten to the four hundred atoms of space in our universe. They're all doing really complicated things. We yeah. humans don't care about what most of those atoms of space. Oh, are. I
2: completely agree.
0: Right. So we're I'm picking.
1: Not, I'm not talking about like I'm not talking about microphysics at all. Right. I'm talking about like a, I'm talking about about Oh, oh yeah, I completely, I completely agree with you. Right, but because so, so what? I'm not what trying you... to say anything reductionist here. Completely. Right. No. So what I'm okay. talking about there is like some some basic mechanisms in the world, like like a, like a, a predator catching a prey, like like very basic. I, I
0: understand. Mechanisms. This is this is a
1: humans humans you a, a few humans trying to take a mammoth down, and I think this sort of basic mechanism. I'm not talking about. Physics, like you know, okay, so so, and and I think language, as far as I'm concerned, is structured about this basic operation.
0: Okay, so I think you are following to the same trap as Aristotle. Okay, dear. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm in good good company then, yes, yes, yes. No, but I mean, what in a sense, you know, what Aristotle, I mean, Aristotle's actual objective is a little bit different, but what, but you know, he was trying to say there are these things in the world and we can make a formal idealization of the things that matter in the world, right? So he's saying, and there is a, he's saying there's a limited uh, formal system, in his case, logic, that yes. capture, right? And so people have, you know, like, like the semantic web is a good example of a bad example, actually. Of, I agree,
1: I agree, I agree.
0: Right, so that, that's a, the semantic web is another kind of, you know, it's a, an ontology, you know, with, with containment and all this kind of thing. I it's agree, a, model, a formal model of the world. So my observation about this is that, that the, you know, what is one trying to do in building a computational language? What one's trying to do is to interpolate between human understanding of things and what actually exists in the world. And it is, I claim that the... You know, I don't think there's a universal model, there's a simple model that does that interpolation, because I think that capturing human understanding, human understanding has a complicated historical foundation that's, you know, the things yeah. that happened to be discovered by this at this and that time, the things that developed based on the fact that we have two arms and things like this, there's a, there's a lot of very detailed stuff there. And so my, my belief in building our computational language, for example, has been that there sh- one shouldn't try to find the magic universal theory that reduces... Oh, I completely opinions. agree.
1: I completely agree. I completely agree. So I'm talking about something much more basic. I'm talking about like basic ideas like that if you got an action, you got an object, and you got a subject, and somebody generating the action, and somebody's not. And this is not even an absolute thing. This is not even an absolute thing. Well, like,
0: yeah, they, right. Sort of, so that's kind funny. of the, the, it is a, a notable fact about human languages that they all have nouns and verbs. That's, that's and, all I'm talking about. That's all I'm talking about. These sort of basic things.
1: That's all I'm talking about. And, and some of the things like uh, the people like Chomsky and Lombik and Gadrung, is like they, they thought sentence type was some sort of different type. It was not. It was some sort of composite of nouns. It basically a sentence type is whatever affects you in the sentence. And then you can kind of build up a completely different. I mean, it, it, it's much less ambitious than, than I probably may, made it sound. Initially, it's like just a slightly different. It's subtle, it's slightly different way of structuring. There is like no sentence types anymore. There's no universal stuff anymore. And then suddenly you get sort of a circuit model of language. It's very simple, it's very naive. And when you talk to people about it, and then like like master students or or students who never hear about it, they just get it. They just get it. Is, is, I mean, that's empirical evidence. Like I've I've been trying to like put turn this, like, I mean, you ask somebody like, put this sentence into some sort of Chomsky grammar structure or whatever. I mean, they have to study for that for half a year, you know. Turn this into the circuit, I tell them they do this in five minutes well that's empirical evidence
0: so i mean you know usually in 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 kind of diagramming sentences there are two different approaches right i mean there these they're these what are they called They're these um oh gosh yeah there there's,
1: there's a few approaches there but we do it i mean the thing is they are sort of like uh, uh they're not as foundational as trump's and stuff you know what i mean like they're not sort of build up from uh, so so we 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 got a proper foundation there now.
0: Right. I mean, uh, the okay, but I mean, I, I'm I'm aware of. I mean, this this stuff that came from Adjukowski and Lambek and all this kind of thing. This this way of, what is it called? The thing where you where you put these where you just connect words can go together. Grammar, categorical grammar. Right, but there's a different name for it in, in in parsing. In parsing, there's the notion of of constituent graphs, constituent trees, and then there's a different. Um, I know we actually have a capability for doing this in our language, so. I, okay. I have to look <laughs> at what, what what this is called. It's some um, what is it called? It is called oh dependency graphs that's right. As dependency, to-
3: dependency graphs yes of course. Yeah, I remember helping design those way back in the day.
0: What's that? Did did you design that tally?
3: Yes, and I prototyped the visualization that we used there I think.
0: So did the, but but I mean so that's just been an approach that I think has fallen by the wayside in the in the I mean Chomsky's is a very tree based approach to structuring right. sentences and dependency graphs is uh, a more i mean th- that's just connecting word. it's more like function application it's more like sure, the sure, verb sure. is a, is a is a function of its of its arguments and so on
1: sure, sure, sure. so i mean the thing i mean the, the main thing we i mean we're building now it's like the idea of having sentence a lot of these things are kind of sentence based like Sentences don't make. I mean, for us, sentences don't even make sense anymore. It's 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 like because many sentences can be broken down in different sentences. Like lots of these traditions were all based about like uh, the monolithic thing is a sentence, right? I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. Like like you tell a story. Sometimes you say something in one sentence. Sometimes you say something in two sentences. The idea of like have, having sentences, a monolithic unit, it's just I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's
0: a well, story. One of, what, it's a story. One the, about a story. Look, one of the issues, I mean, sentences are a form of modularity. And modularity, I mean, one thing we've learned from the practice of computation is, you know, that's the, way, that's the reason von Neumann, back to von Neumann, you know, another thing von Neumann kind of got wrong was this idea that, you know, a program would have to be a monolithic thing. And so he thought programs couldn't be very long. It it the, you know,
1: yeah, I agree with that completely.
0: Right. I mean he he you know he didn't have this idea of modularization of programs and I think sentences and paragraphs and so on are probably our you know a, an important modularization for the practical processing of language by our brains I mean it, it may not be a, a necessary feature just like you could write a program you know you could do you could write uh, you know any one of these programs you write you don't need subroutines you can just write the whole thing as one long string it's just very hard to process by by something like by something with finite memory and you know finite computational capabilities.
1: I mean, I think part of the problem there is the the linearity of how we speak because we put it all in one line. We can't have like sort of a higher dimensional representations of what we try to say because our mouth can't do this, our ears can't process this. We can draw pictures. We can draw. There drop... we go. Right. And 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 then
3: like probably we don't need to be to have this restriction to sentences anymore. Well, Stephen right. Pinker has a very Stephen so, Pinker sorry. has a very interesting point about this. Uh one of his excuse me uh, it just can... a, sorry. Talia
0: you should you should you should go on camera so we can see so you actually appear as I mean um, I missed
3: the beginning of what you said. Oh, I was just saying that Stephen Pinker makes a great point about this. It's one of his popular books on language. And the way that he uh, presents it is that you've got a graph in your head which is the meaning you want to commu- uh, communicate it's a bunch of relationships between uh-huh. entities and good writing is the art of choosing a walk in that graph that kind of captures as much as you can do but it has good locality properties so that the working memory of the reader or of the listener is always at the vertices that you've recently traversed in the last sentence or the last paragraph or whatever and that just re-emphasizes that point that sentences aren't really relevant. Sentences are just temporary stopping points where you reach a bit of a dead end. You could just end up repeating something that you said before, and you want to take a new path through the graph to communicate some more information. And so you just have to stop a particular set of clauses, which are a little subgraph. Um, and I quite like that. It was a very vivid way of... And it, it accords with how I feel about what good writing is. It's really about navigating this abstract space of meaning efficiently.
0: That's interesting, it, although although i think that in a sense presupposes tally this kind of you know knowledge graph esque view of what meaning is which i which uh, which i tend to think is not a particularly good approximation to what's actually true in the world i mean Probably that's a, not
3: and, and maybe hypergraphs are the way to to update that idea to the 21st century that would be interesting
0: although sparkle. although sparkle and things like that do already have hypergraphs
3: my understanding is that everything is, tuple, everything is triples in the end. So they do the same trick that you did early with the physics project, where it's just like, well, every graph, you can turn it into a trivalent graph. But you actually lose a lot of ability to reason about complex things when you do that. You kind of miss the point. So it, but
0: when it, you're it, talking about triples, you're talking about knowledge graphs, right? We, yeah, we're talking well, about...
3: I'm not talking about triples, but...
0: Yeah, right. But, but what I was saying was that, that one attempt to... I mean, this knowledge graph idea sounds cool,
4: but doesn't work
0: in practice. I mean, so that's basically- I completely
2: agree.
1: It
0: like, Doesn't in practice
4: people that's... do distributional semantics? Like isn't there's a whole other way of thinking about meaning, right? Which is pioneered by these machine learning kind of these word embeddings and a lot of the recent ideas in machine translation. These are what, quote unquote, distributional semantics, vector space. space yes, semantics. but
0: that, that also, and I'm curious what Bob thinks about this. I mean, you know, the word to vec world of you know, let's have a vector space that represents meaning um, is, uh, uh, you know, to me, the one example of, you know, king minus man equals queen type thing or something, or plus woman equals queen. Um, This kind of linearity to meaning space just seems completely wrong to me. And I, you know, I'm curious what you think about this kind of the vector space okay. embedding.
1: Let, let me put two, okay, I can put two, say two things about it. I, I completely agree. It's completely shit. There's nothing like meanings living in vector space. On the other hand, like, I mean, my only claim to fame in, in like, anything to do with language is in that area because, like, in 2008, nobody, when the, I mean, nobody knew how to combine meaning and grammar. Like, I mean, now they don't care anymore. But at a time, actually, there was a question like, how can we combine meaning and grammar? And by using like a, a composi- our compositional approach, we basically took like grammatical structure on the one hand, like embedded like as linear maps in, in vector spaces. Like we took lambda calculus, thought of it as linear, linear maps, like in categorical quantum mechanics, like like in teleportation and stuff like that. We we put it together like meanings as vectors. And we had an algorithm to compute, compute meanings of sentences from meanings of words. That's what—that's uh, something we did in 2008. I mean, this got a lot of bigger. I mean, this was pre—this was pre-deep learning, you know. So we were on the cover of New Scientist and all that with all that shit. So, so I'm always—I'm
0: always suspicious, you know. New Scientist. I was amused to realize uh, recently that I have. I, I know, have I
1: sus- don't know, but I mean, I mean, it's funny. Like that was my the first time I got on the cover of like a major. <laughs>
0: Thing. No, like, I, I was going to say I mean, about was new legend language, which I knew nothing about. Right. This, this is, you know, New Scientist is the only magazine where I have continuously subscribed to it most of my life. I've had a subscription for fifty-three years. I realized, <laughs> um, but almost everything that uh, it is, it is a is a great read, but almost nothing that you read in there turns out to be real. Exactly. I mean, exactly. It,
5: exactly. exactly. So, so Bob, George Lakoff has written at length about things you've talked about. In fact, what you've been talking about sounds can so you, much like can a lot get it back? Can you go back again? Okay. What you have talked about sounds so similar to a lot of things that George Lakoff and Philip Johnson Laird have been writing about a meaning of language being rooted in our embodied experience in the world. And yes. also about the, how the structure of language is largely built on Mental models and metaphors, which can be highly parallel. Uh huh. So, have you read those guys? Because they may have a lot to yeah. say that's relevant to how exactly much what you're I am like,
1: I'm, I mean, what can I do? Like, I'm not building quantum computers and stuff like, I mean, uh, I mean, it's a, I mean, a per, how much can a person do? Like, I mean, I also like to drink my beer, right? <laughs> but yeah,
0: I mean, I'm. I mean, uh, uh, I don't. Yeah, I, I. also have copies of those those books, and I also book, have never I mean, really I mean, understood.
1: It's them. a. How do you? I mean, I know Steve. You. Steve, you know so much. Like, how do you do that? Because I don't. Why do you read? When do you find time to read that stuff? I, mean, I don't know. Like, I so, mean, so I, look, I mean it's, that's just like a personal question. Like, how do you? I'm do also that? very curious
4: about the answer to this question. <laughs> what,
0: <laughs> You're asking who? Who are you asking? You're asking me. The yeah. The, I look. It, it becomes easier. To, I have a good memory, and it becomes easier to learn things after you've learned a lot of stuff already, because things fit together, and um, that's so. It it uh, it becomes ever easier to learn new things. I, that that's my basic answer. I mean, but but I think, but but now I'm I, curious. I'm asking about the reading to find time to read. I, I don't read very well. I must admit, I'm I'm not a I great. Nothing. I read nothing. I read yeah, nothing. well, I can't do. I mean, I've like I, I built like like this big group at
1: Oxford University, fifty people. So I'm dealing with admin bullshit and stuff like that. I used to deal. I mean, I mean, I can't read anything because the only th- I mean, if you want to have some time to create, you just don't have time to read.
0: It's it, that's the sort of position I found myself in. Well, see, that's that's why now that you're a company person, maybe you'll have <laughs> a different kind of structure. The, but but um, actually, I have to since 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 you're now in the quantum computing business, I have to ask. I mean, have have you been involved much in kind of the physics of how quantum computers should actually work?
1: Uh, I mean, I mean. I don't know whether you noticed this, but like recently we sort of absorbed part of Honeywell. So so as the senior scientist, I'm supposed to understand that stuff now.
0: Um, So you know I I saw that you guys were were caught in the gravitational, you know, well of of Honeywell, so to speak, which is a fine company.
1: Actually, actually, it's it. So it chopped off from Honeywell and then so, so I'm I'm still in charge of the science, so nothing changed for me. So that's kind of cool. Uh, but I, I probably need to know more about iron traps now <laughs> soon. <laughs> I mean, I kind of know something about them because they used to do these things in Oxford, like uh, next door to to where I used to be. So that's that's a good thing. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is like I've been closely involved. I mean, actually, I've been pushing an experiment from from like a year and a half ago with like the optics people, because that's where I think in the long term the future is optics. And I've been
0: so that's your bet for the for the implementation technology for quantum computing is optical.
1: I mean, that's the thing I understand best. I mean, this superconducting stuff, uh, iron traps. Like uh, I vaguely understand superconducting. I mean, I'm just talking about understanding. I'm not. I'm not talking about trust. I'm talking something that my mind can actually understand. The optic stuff. Like, I'm, I'm pretty good at because I've been. I've been very close to like Zeilinger group in Vienna for many ages. They were like a, like one of the biggest quantum foundations group. Like I've spent so much time there. I, I'm, I'm friends with Zeilinger, so I know this. Know all this stuff. Like, uh, so we're doing experiments with them. And I. And and if you. Companies like Psy Quantum, like Terry Rudolph, in a, I don't know, like, a, I mean, I, I mean they are actually the people personally I know the best and stuff like that. They're, they're doing the secretive thing there. I hope that's, and, and they're doing measurement based quantum computing, which is really measurement based quantum
0: computing. I mean, they're using technology. I mean, this is uh, using microprocessor manufacturing technology for quantum computing. I mean, that's the, uh, at a practical technological level, that seems to be the one I mean, of the, the key conceptual
1: points. level is much more interesting. Like, uh, they're doing measurement based quantum computing, which means like they don't, they don't do unitary gates and stuff like that, it's just like only observing.
0: So, all why is, is it quantum if it's all observer? Why is it, I mean, doesn't the no, observer it's, it's quantum measurement, yeah? But, but it's, what...
2: teleportation.
0: it's like teleportation, you alter the state by observing, okay.
1: And you you get a universal computational model and it's by nature much more uh, fault tolerant because everything happens like much quicker. Like. so so that's what they're doing that's what they're doing like quantum like
0: but so it's it's still a time based it's not like d wave for example where it's a-
1: oh nothing to do with that d wave is like like this evolution thing like it's not no no measurement based computing in optics is like uh You just got one huge entangled state. Everything is encoded there. Everything is there. There's nothing else. And then you start observing. And then then you got some sort of protocols, which is mainly classically processed, how the different observations should affect the next observations. It's a super cool model of computer. There's nothing classical like that. Completely different story than, I mean, mean, for that reason, I think that's the way to go. I mean, my idea about quantum computing is, I mean, when people say, like, like, can we do things better with quantum, which we do classically? I mean, I mean, that's wrong. That's the wrong mentality. Like, like what can we
0: do new, which is
1: completely different?
0: That, that's the right question. So what kind of computations do you think will be possible that have been a different, different definition of computation than has been used for classical computers? I
1: mean, the measurement based stuff is by default a completely different computational model. And the only thing people have been doing is trying to compare it.
0: But But so, but I mean, the the problem is when we use technology, computational or anything else, Uh we use it for whatever purposes we humans have, so to speak. So to say it can do something different is unless we can map that onto something which has some human purpose it doesn't really work as technology, so to speak. So, I mean, the question would be, what's an example of something? Let's say I have one of these quantum boxes on my desk. What magical thing can I now do that I couldn't do before? It's a good question. I don't know. And, and okay. that's exactly the point. I mean,
1: there's lots of stuff we are doing now that I didn't imagine 30 years ago we'd be doing now. I mean, maybe it's different for you. Like, like the- the world, as it looks now, looks very different to me than I imagined when I was like a 10-year-old kid. I mean, I, I, was, I, I was thinking about spaceships and going to Mars and going to other planets. I wasn't thinking about like a laptop. I wasn't thinking about like, a, you, you know, mobile, even mobile phones. Like, I wasn't oh, thinking like,
0: about... I think one of the things that's a challenge is, you know, your. And and our kind of model of, of sort of multi-way computation. Uh-huh. The question is, what are the, what are the human useful use cases of multi-way computation? So, you know, we've we've understood, you know, Turing machines, we understand, you know, there's a there's a giant tower of utility that we built there. Although, well, to so so to give you an example of of, of kind of a weird case, right? So my computational irreducibility concept, um, you know when i originally started talking about that in the 1980s i wasn't sure where that would be used right turns out it's got this big use case in the crazy idea of proof of work for cryptocurrencies right so that's a it's a crazy use that's
1: exactly what i'm saying that's exactly what i'm saying that's exactly what i'm saying i mean i mean i mean when i'm talking to my i mean I mean, just as a super example, like when Ross Duncan and I, I mean, I mean when, when I started the category of quantum mechanics, we had this like pamphlet, high level quantum, high level quantum programming language or something like that. The, where it's now used is like low level, <laughs> like, like quantum, quantum like compilation, like 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 optimizing gates. That was never part of the plan. It was never part of, it. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, of course it's good. I mean, it's not that, it's, I mean, you know, the intention was high-level quantum computation,
0: like programming. But what would that do? What would, I mean, so so in other words, my question is, because, you know, this is in a sense, you know, again, in my, in my lifelong activity of, of, of language design, the big question in language design is what do people want to do? Once you can define functionally what people want to do, the implementation is challenging, but it's a very definite path. And the question is, what do people want to do? So given a quantum computer, like, what can we imagine doing with a quantum computer that is somehow, uh, you know, some, it's something we care about, but is something different from what we've imagined doing before? But uh, this is a question to you.
1: Whatever you did, I mean, I, I remember I, I had to learn Mathematica as a physics student and all that. Like when, when I had to learn mathematics as a physical student, a physics student in the early 90s, whatever you're doing now, did you imagine that? That was something people cared about.
0: Which aspect of it? The the things that...
1: Whatever you're doing now, whatever you're doing, whatever you think now I produced in the last... I mean, this this was early 90s, I think I was... Right,
0: well, so so for example, I,
1: I... Whatever you did in the last 30 years, do you think, did you think 30 years ago, that's something you were actually shooting for?
0: So the, the real answer is I, I, I wrote down a to-do list in 1991. We finally finished that to-do list a few years ago. About half, half the things I've done were on that to-do list. The other half were not. So okay. in other words, so half the things I think were kind of, you know, they were on a path that was predictable. And half were things like, you know, something like blockchain. I didn't predict Exactly, blockchain. exactly. The, and, you know, I think that, but there are certain trends that I think, I mean, this this idea, for example, the idea of thinking about things computationally. I mean, that idea, I've known that that idea is going to sort of take over the world for 40 years or more, right? That That idea inexorably is what's going to happen. Anything that can be sort of made computational will be made computational. And that's been an unsurprising sort of trend of history. I think, that, um, uh, you know, for example, in recent times, the biggest surprise to me has been, well, the the fact that uh, particularly with these multi-way systems and things, you know, I I started looking at multi-way systems in the early 1990s Um, and I thought they were interesting, but the central role that they're now playing in our models of physics. And I think that they, I I kind of, I, I have this increasing belief that there's sort of a paradigm for science. So, so okay, my, my latest kind of um, gloss on the history of science, uh, which I, I've been, I think, mentioning a few times this, this week to our, our students here, but, but um, is, uh, you know, I'm sort of identifying four epochs in the history of science and um, that have to do in some, at some level with the treatment of time. So in sort of ancient Greek times, it was like, what's the structure of the world? You know, is the world made of icosahedra, is the world made of epicycles, whatever. There's no time involved. It's just, what is the structure of the world? Then you get to the 1600s and it's like, let's write down a formula for how the world works and time is a coordinate. And we can just sort of pick what time we want to to choose. And then in kind of my sort of efforts with my whole new kind of science stuff and, and exploring the computational universe, the big point is time is computational. And the progress of time is the doing of computation. And that that leads to all this computational irreducibility stuff and so on. And that that kind of gives you a new set of things that you can talk about scientifically, a new set of complex phenomena and so on you can talk about scientifically. What I'm sort of realizing is sort of the fourth epoch is this kind of multi-fingered time world of multi-way systems, um, where instead of having, you know, a... Uh, where where in a sense there's this kind of multiple threads of time and to even know what's happening you have to have some some way in which the observer is knitting together these different threads and I my my belief is uh that a whole bunch of areas of science have kind of been waiting for to to get a theoretical foundation have been waiting for an understanding of that kind of setup and so you know I think I mean, linguistics is one that I don't understand how this relates to. OK, so I've been looking at metamathematics, at chemistry, at biology, at economics. And these are places where I I kind of have the suspicion that that kind of approach is is the right sort of foundational way to think about models in those in those in those areas, because, you know, it's like some systems. Are well modelled by epoch, you know, by the and the epoch from antiquity. They're well modelled by just saying what's the structure of the system, how is it made of things. Other things are well modelled with equations, where you can just say, you know, that you can uh, sort of slide along the time just by by picking its value in a formula. Other things get modelled by programs and cellular automata and all this kind of stuff. That um, and that's, but then there are a class of things that I think include a bunch of things in physics. A bunch of things in areas like economics, biology, chemistry, which I don't think have been well modeled by these by these sort of previous views of how one does modeling. And I'm sort of hoping that um, uh, this this I don't yet understand it very well. I don't understand how to think in this in in terms of these multiway systems. And that's why you know that's why I'm that's why in terms of reading I'm I'm sort of hoping I'll actually get a chance to read this. Thing. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, and and I want to understand this. You know I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to take this kind of what I think you're referring to as a kind of compositional approach and trying to understand how do we turn that into something that we humans can for example use in a computational language and and um, uh, and kind of think in terms of
1: I mean that's exactly what I'm doing as yes, you know.
0: do <laughs> like, oh, right. well, that's why I want to talk to you that's what
1: I'm doing I mean I don't have the questions to 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 everything but I, I mean I see the fit and I know like I mean I mean we we've communicate we've been communicating a lot like I mean through Jonathan and all that like because
0: but, but but I think one of these one of these key issues is for me this kind of uh way of of um uh of thinking about things which which is which is related to the whole quantum computing the the, the sort of quantum concept of computation, more so than whether it's ion traps or photons or anything like that. This idea of of multiple threads of history, so to speak. And my my question is really, you know, I can see in some of these science areas, I can see how those ideas can be applied scientifically. I am really curious to, to understand how they can be applied technologically. And I haven't understood that. And what I think is the case is that there should be a way of thinking about distributed computing that makes use of these kinds of ideas and that leads us to very different use cases for distributed computing i just haven't figured out how that works and i think for example the concept of you know how do you program a distributed system you know because people people right now they try and sequentialize distributed systems they say let's make let's use locks and things like this to make sure that that you don't and that's you know a lot of this theory that we were talking about before of the of the kind of Tony Hoare Robin Milner theory is all about how do you not get the system all tangled up by things happening in parallel and not knowing what happened oh, before right. what and so the question is is there a way of actually thinking about computation so that you don't have to untangle it so that you can really think about it at the level where it's still tangled so to speak and you know how do we how do we think about that and then how do we what kinds of new technological possibilities are there if we can sort of think about things in those terms? I, I don't know the answer. I mean, this is, this is the- I don't know,
1: like, I, I mean, I, my, my gut feeling is that whatever the answer is to that question is like gonna be much more than what you're asking for to the extent that like, it, 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 it's gonna be a revolution. It's gonna completely change everything. I mean, I, I mean, otherwise I wouldn't be, doing this? Because I don't Well, right. It.
0: But so one of the questions then is, uh, the thing that comes out, will uh, will will we humans actually understand the stuff that comes out? Because it's not obvious. I mean, we can have a, a great civilization of AIs that work I mean, by I using... Mean, okay, okay. I mean, what does understand mean? I
1: know you, you've got natural understanding software already around. Like, so, what do we mean by understanding? Uh, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's so many different levels of what we mean by understanding. I mean, obviously whatever is happening in machine learning now is like dumb. As, as idiotic as it can be. So, so uh,
0: Well, it, it's it's been look, it's a it's a methodology which I think has has largely plateaued at this point, not completely plateaued, plateauing. but
1: the, it's completely plateauing. It's completely plateauing. Well, I, I, I my think the, is just washing it. I introduced my wife. She's gonna say <laughs> hi to you. Just sitting here.
0: No, to Let's go go. come into the frame. We can see. So we saw <laughs> only the hand. Let's go <laughs> Hello there. Wait, there. Have to
1: go to the you can say
0: oh, it. Oh, hi. Oh, Okay, you're, you're being, you're being, you're being put in place. So, so are you, are you a, a techno, technological person, or scientific person, or something completely different?
6: <laughs> I'm in science. I'm an educational neuroscientist, but. Uh, not a computer scientist. What do you mean by science and technology? Of course, we use different kind of technology, like EEG, like FMI, this kind of things. Um, you said so,
0: educational neuroscience, or yeah. it, it's an mean-
6: emerging field. Actually, there are there are a few centers in the world. One of them is in London, uh, Center of Educational Neuroscience. The other one is based on Harvard. The other one, there are some little groups in Bristol, in Europe. In you know, I,
0: I, have a, I have a friend named Terry Sanofsky, who's one of the sort of early computational neuroscience people. Um, Terry Sanofsky uh, wrote this course about um, a sort of neuroscience based course about learning how to learn, which uh, He's very proud of the fact that it's, he just released a new version of it. He's very proud of the fact that it's a top rated course on Coursera and so on. I'm afraid I think it may be kind of nonsense, but um, uh, you know, it's a kind of a, it's, it's how to use neuroscience to, to learn how to learn, so to speak. Um, I mean, I think- I think all
6: the idea of education is about learning how to learn. Yes. Uh, not sure about neuroscience. That's true actually, because uh, as compared to the theory of education, neuroscience can be defined as it's, its in, in its infancy.
0: Yeah, but I mean, well, do you think there's a theory of education? I mean, in other words, if oh, yeah, a-
6: There are two different theories of education. Um but yeah, actually one of the some people think that education is not science, some people think that education is a kind of proper, well, grounded scientific field. Um I believe that some my previous PhD was on education, uh so I always defend <laughs> education is the proper scientific field, of course, and there are lots of theories. Um so the involvement of economy, sociology, psychology, philosophy. So, of course, education expands its borders. Uh, but yeah, we can talk about so many different theories.
0: Well, the question is in, in the modern technological world, there are lots of new things that people have to learn in order to work in the, you know, in order to operate in the modern technological world. One of the things that seems not obvious is it could be that the world gets more and more complicated to the point where it is impossible for somebody to learn enough to operate in the world but somehow we managed to organize our world so that we abstract enough away that the amount we have to teach doesn't you know doesn't expand we you know there was a time when you'd have to in order to use a computer you'd have to know how electronic circuits work but yeah. we don't have to know that anymore and so somehow the, we managed to keep it finite the,
6: the main um, uh, so the if you if you draw a kind of uh, developmental line from education educating through learning so learning kind of uh, takes its way towards forward because the concept is not educating anymore the concept is learning more emphasis on learning how can we improve people's capacity to learn or understand or self-educate themselves because the I am one of the uh, people. I believe that we cannot teach.
0: Okay, that's a right. That's a somewhat controversial but right? In fact, the the. Um,
6: Sorry, uh, I just.
0: <laughs> now we can we can continue the. Actually, I we we all have to go soon. But but. Um, okay. Uh, it it um, I, I think this um. um the the, the uh, uh, this this question about whether. Um, Let's see. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. The, the, well, that's a whole different, different okay, topic. We need can to
6: organize discuss. another talk then. We need to discuss.
0: Yes. Right. Well, that, that's a very interesting question. Whether, whether learning is actually possible or whether...
6: No, learning is possible, but teaching is not. Until the person allows you.
0: So because now the question is, but are you a professor, for example, whose business is, is, is I'm teaching? a
6: docent, docent, what is this?
0: Docent. Uh,
6: uh, reader in education. OK. But, um, but uh, I do research at UCL now. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, we can discuss. Sorry another time, about- <laughs> another
0: time. The, maybe, maybe one day we'll meet in person. That would be fine. Yeah, um, yeah, hopefully, so hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> anyway, well, we should, let's see. I, I think we should probably wrap up soon because I know um, uh, um, various people um, have been asking questions here. And I'm not sure if I can Can I ask something. one
4: quick question just, just to get my head straight? So this foundation of quantum mechanics, right, it's from a very different perspective from how I encountered it. And so my question was, like, when I first learned about quantum mechanics, solving Schrodinger's equation, particle in a box, you know, then learning about, okay, it's not actually Schrodinger's equation. It's this field theory that we quantize and blah, blah, blah. And so to me, that was quantum mechanics. And it feels like what you have been talking about is totally different, but related. And how do you move from your foundations to the foundations that we see kind of experimentally with PDEs and field theories? And
1: there's no, there's no I mean, there's no in foundations whatsoever. It's like different focus. Uh, I mean people, I mean quantum mechanics was like basically what are people doing in CERN and how can we predict what's happening in CERN in the previous century. Then in the new then people started to do tabletop experiments, the new centuries, and there was this sort of like when I, mean, I remember this, like in the previous century, there was so, sort of arrogance. If you didn't do infinite dimensional stuff, if you didn't do field theory, you were actually doing nothing. You were sort of like a, a loser. And whatever happened in the, in, in the last, like, 20, 25 years, people started to discover completely new things that you can actually do with, which, not new things, like new things you can prove and derive from quantum mechanics which have nothing to do with infinite dimensions, which have nothing to do with field theory, which have nothing to do with CERN, which are completely new things people never thought about. I mean, I, mean, I mean, the first one to do so was John Bell,
0: of course. Well, like to... Who was at CERN, by the way? Just, who just at, as a who footnote? was at CERN as an engineer, <laughs> as an engineer doing wires. He wasn't- Accelerators. He, yeah, accelerators.
1: Something like that. But he was kind, but no, I mean, it's very nice to see sort of the, 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 the citations to his papers over the year. Like, like for like 30 years, nobody cared about that paper. And then boom, then suddenly, boom, people thought, oh, that's actually irrelevant. And now this, this is the foundation for, I mean, whether it happens or not, I don't know, but like new quantum cryptography is just based on on, on what, you, I mean, when we were talking about quantum foundations, where people screaming at each other about interpretations. That guy was not screaming about interpretations. He came up with a theorem, and how this became practically useful. Right. And then, I mean, that the... That, that, that's sort of the big shift in quantum foundations. People are now thinking about things and at the same time thinking like, I mean, I mean, it, it's sort of something which happened in my life too. Like I, I was sort of like, uh, when I started in physics, I was thinking about like, how should we understand things, blah, blah, blah. But it was kind of disconnected from the idea like, if you understand something better, will it be useful? And And, and I completely shift my, my mindset now if, if it's not useful short term it's bullshit i mean i mean i mean i i think we can agree on that one <laughs>
0: yes, it's it's a it's a good uh you know technological driving things from whether it's technologically useful is uh,
1: exactly. I mean, now that's how i'm talking to my people that's how i'm talking to my students still have students by the way <laughs> yeah, no, i'm still supervising you know uh so yeah, no, yeah. I,
0: I, the thing that I found interesting, I mean, I, I don't know what your experience has been, but i managed to, in my life, I've kind of alternated between doing basic science and doing technology. And I've been sort of uh, pleased by the extent to which sort of the, the technology enables basic science, the basic science informs what you can do in technology. I'm one, completely with you, though. It's, so, it's, I mean, I one of the big surprises from our physics project now is that I thought this was a pure basic science project, but it's ending up having all kinds of its formalism, particularly, has all kinds of implications for these kinds of things we've been talking about. Anyway, we should we should probably. It's getting very late for you, and it's um, and I I I I have another meeting in a few minutes, so I've. I've um, but uh, it was pretty long. It was three hours. Yeah. Right. Right. Longer well, longer than the previous one. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Well, it's that. That proves they're interesting things to chat about. Uh, I think that um, uh, um, and um, well, we, we shall we shall have to continue at another time. And um, uh, so everybody uh, will 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 um, for folks who are at um, our summer school. Um, I think we've sent out a number of links to Bob's work, and um, you can you can find out more about what you sh- what you should have asked or something. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, all right, we should we should wrap up here. So th- thanks very much, Bob, and um,
2: see you no, another sorry, time. Thanks to you again.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was fun.
2: We should thank do you. this again.
0: Indeed, yes. All right, see you. See, see you later. Okay, Bye-bye. Thank
2: you. bye bye. Bye. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Bye, everybody. Thank you.